Hi, uh, this is Dr. Days, and this is Darkling number 31. Darklings are a particular podcast in the Dark Days radio list. They focus on particular topics in the world of darkness or other games which kind of share su- uh, similar themes, moods, and concepts that you see turn up in the world of darkness. Or they're just other games that we really, really like. Um, <laughs> and today we're covering Fading Suns. So... I'm one of your regular Dark Days hosts, Chris, and I'm joined by Pete, who is a infrequent guest in in our uh, podcast and to our Darkwing. So, Pete, how's it going? It's going well. It's going well, absolutely. Cool. You been up to any good gaming recently? Uh, um, well, gaming-wise, what have I been doing? I've been doing a little bit of board gaming. We've, we fired up Zombicide, which is which went absolutely gangbusters on um on Kickstarter to the point where you can actually resell your copy of Zombicide for something like three, four hundred dollars on eBay. Apparently, apparently the demand for that one's quite high, and that's that's a hoot. And uh, role-playing game-wise, I've got my uh, fortnightly game of Aberrant, which is which we're having a lot of fun with. Okay, cool. Um. Yeah, I'm obviously. Well, we did the Cthulhu Tech. Um, we did the Cthulhu Tech uh, Google Hangout game, which actually worked quite well in the end. Um, yeah, I haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet. So, so how, so how do you reckon it turned out? Did was there a total party kill? Did everybody go insane? It, no, it worked all right. I think there's there's just there was some head scratching with the rules in quite a few. Surprise! Surprise! Yeah. Um, it was where it wasn't clear, like, when it says a penalty, it wasn't clear whether it would be a penalty to the number you were rolling or a penalty to the number of dice you were rolling, which is... Oh, nice! Yeah. Um, and of course, been playing, played my second session of, uh, Iron Kingdoms, um, RPG, so I've been running that, and this time around we actually used a, I've actually invested in a rollout mat, you know, gaming mat, so I've I found as many I found as many OHP pens at work, and you know we've got counters currently for you know where the characters are and the monsters are they go up against or antagonists, and that's actually working really well because if you've never played uh, War Machine or Hordes uh, compared to Warhammer, the rules are very simple, very very, yeah, yeah. Simple, and it's very fast playing, and it translates perfectly well to a tabletop roleplay game. And the rule system translated perfectly well to doing extra skills that are non-combat based. So that's that's working out perfectly fine. I mean, uh, to give people insight in what I'm running right now is riffing off Brotherhood of the Wolf. So that's my... Because it's a very easy... like If, if the players recognise the film that I'm referencing for their first story, then they can play to the themes even though it may not exactly play out in the same way. At least they kind of get the feel and the, the mood and the kind of look of it. You know, dingy, horrible French towns and, you know, misty, misty, you know, fields and, you know, dense woods and walls and so forth. And, yeah, that's going yeah. really well. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, what else can we say quickly on Darker Days? I mean, this is, I've actually looked at the list. This is the 83rd Darker <laughs> Days podcast. Um, so, so that, 100 is, is, is not too far away. Wow. 100, we should, we should, yeah. We should do something big for 100. Yeah. Um, and what else we got going on? I just quickly want to... Um, 
the exalted quick uh, kickstart. Yeah, I was, was going to say if, if we're if we're quickly going to run over things, uh, it is a hell of a good time to to be a White Wolf fan because there is oh, just yeah. so much. There's so much great stuff going on. Um, what is it? My Hunters Hunted Two uh, backer PDF that arrived. I've I've given that a cursory glance. I'm, I'm hoping to be able to get to get a review up on the up on the G Plus sometime in the next oh, couple oh, yeah. of weeks. But that, a... that, that's, that's fantastic. And um and yeah um you were just about to say Exalted has 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 third edition has just blown up yeah quite yeah yeah it's got twenty days left and it's at four hundred fifteen thousand dollars hot damn now and it's it's original target was sixty thousand so it's far uh, it's you know it's clocking up. Over, you're now almost at seven times the you know 700% goal target, so that's crazy. And the amount of the stuff that keeps ticking up on it. I mean, it's getting to the point where I I personally was going to wait until I got a review of PDF and use that to get a premium print copy because I just have the money to get their crazy deluxe edition. I don't know uh, what that feels like, yeah. But. The new backer contributions to the books are they will get some sort of five different printed physical bookmarks, so you can bookmark different pages while you're running the game. Um, They've added 50% more words to the sorcery section of the book. Oh man! Then they will be getting the they'll be if they get the the next goal up as well, 450,000. They will ensure that John and Holden, uh, who are the main developers of the game, um, will be able to get them to go to Gen Con. So, and there's ridiculous reward tiers and pledge, you know, pledge tiers, limited ones. So if you pledge it, you can get to go have dinner with the guys from Onyx Path Publishing at Gen Con and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's it, all kind of crazy. I mean, I'm liking the look at it. I read about the combat system and how they're Totally overhauling it. Not much on the actual systems, but on the general philosophy they're going for, and that all looks. Mm. And the way they've modified the map and they've made it a bigger world and more variation. So that's going well. Um, obviously, mm. I've started reading through Werewolf 20th Anniversary Edition for Werewolf yep. Slips, um, which is you know it's, it's it's exactly what I expected, which is it it looks like the book. That you know, revised was, um, and you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of different different opinions. I mean, we've I've already spoken about this on Google Plus, like how I kind of fall with um, not being a, a massive fan of the art for Werewolf. So obviously, I'm trying to just go. I'm looking at it as a person that's never played Werewolf the Apocalypse and never even bought the original stuff. So I'm completely kind of unbiased in the sense of I don't have any yeah, nostalgia for it. doesn't have the nostalgia factor for you, no. Like, if you've got the nostalgia factor, then it's a great book, I'm sure, and you can't <laughs> fault it, because it's all the old all the old artwork in there, and, and some new stuff, and the same artists. And that's great, and that's what it deserves, but you know, it's maybe just not my cup of tea in that sense. But I'll read it and see how much the, the, the writing may have matured in places, because you know, it's had 20 years, and it's got writers that Got on board with Werewolf the Forsaken and have now mm. been writing on this, so we'll see how that goes. 
Absolutely. I'm I'm waiting to pick that one up once again. To just I need some I need some more cash in the old coffers, and mm. then I'll um I think it, it'll probably be it'll probably end up me doing like you know a pretty massive order and picking up a premium edition of Werewolf, a premium edition of God Machine Chronicle, um and I'll probably by that point a premium um edition of Blood and Smoke because that's that's not too far on the horizon, yeah. is it? I think that'll be I think that's looking to be July or something like that. I know it got pushed back. I don't think it was supposed to come out in June. Yeah, so it might be a little bit later. On, but yeah, I'm, I'm, my wallet is certainly happier if it if it if it's, if it's a little bit later. I think um, I think Gold Machine Chronicle. I'm I'm happy just with it on uh, PDF right now because it just yeah. meant the main book. I'll get it on a hard copy when I actually have time and space. Because you know some because I've got to think my, when you when you when you move country like I have, and then you think oh, in another year or two I could move country. I'm going to more than likely move country again for another job. It's like, you know, you don't need, to, you don't want to have too many blocks of wood to cart uh, around. And, uh, Absolutely. I have to judge every book on when, if I like it, but am I going to play it in the next six months? And mm. if I'm not, then I have to go, maybe not. So blood and, but the nice thing is, you know, print on demand, like premium copies are always yeah. going to be there. So, you know, it's, it's, that's, 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 a, that's the benefit of, uh, of um, drive-through RPG and one bookshelf, and like that's everything we just spoke about. So um, with yeah. uh, uh, Matt McElroy, uh, um on um, Darker Days 47, which is actually just up. So um, yeah, obviously just, people they should have listened to it already. Stream, actually, they should have. Yes. <laughs> so we're not going on about that. So yes, Fading Suns finally. Fading Suns. So we've been wanting to talk about this for a while. Um, I mm. think part of the reason for it is um, Fading Suns obviously shares a, uh, a a design philosophy and a design like when I say philosophy, I mean like both in terms of rules and maybe in terms of mood, theme, artwork, layout, and just and writing, which makes it. A cousin, I would say, to classic World of Darkness. Absolutely. And it's no surprise because of the writers that work on. Mm. And when it came out, um, and I think we spoke about this when we had, uh, let me think, who did we have on the show? I'm trying to think. Uh, but, but when, um, you were, I think, uh, when there was some talk about, uh, with regard to Aeon Trinity Universe. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, there's, like, Sorry, yeah. there's, so, there's, there's a relationship between Fading Suns and that in the sense that they came about at the same sort of time. So I kind of see them as kind of like kissing cousins in, in some respects of how they're related in both what type of game they are, which is sci-fi, and the writers that you see appearing in these books. Yeah. Um, so what do we have to say? First of all, where the hell did Fading Suns come from and what the well, hell is it about? Well, okay. To the best of my knowledge, okay, because um, when we say the same writers, while well, we're talking about Andrew Greenberg and uh, Bill Bridges, yeah. now if you if you if if you know your White Wolf history, these guys were both. Um, these guys uh, were both. I think they popped up. Well, actually, no. Bridges was around. I think from the beginning, Bridges has got sole writer credit on a whole bunch of the early vampire books, uh, particularly the original Hunters Hunted. That was entirely Bill Bridges. And I think he was... Oh, I'm, I know someone's going to pop up on the G+, and say, no, Pete, you're wrong. I'm relatively certain he wrote most of... Um, most of second edition uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, and I think he was line dev on that one for a, mm. for a fair chunk of it. 
so if we've got exact times, I think it was. I think it came out something like where my show notes. I think it came out something like ninety six. Yeah. And I think it was. I think it, originally it was attached to a video game, which was uh, Emperor of the Fading Suns. Yes. Which I'm. Which unfortunately I've never played. Um, well, basically, I, I think it was a bit of an obscure title to begin with, and these days it's it's like most old games, it requires a DOS box or something to get <laughs> cranking. Um, I think it's a little bit similar to, or this is once again, so I've read, it's a little bit similar to things like um, Master of Orion. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of that sort of um, what do they call it? the 4X game where you know you're where you're managing troops, managing resources, managing um, managing uh, your interactions with other factions, and managing spaceships and whatnot. Alright, so so that's Fading Suns. Now, where to begin with Fading Suns? So, oh, I think the the important thing also to to note is that Fading Suns mm-hmm. is produced by uh, Holistic Designs. Yeah, so, yeah, complete. Yeah. So we're talking about a completely different company to White Wolf, mm. um, and yeah. So it's essentially, I, I guess, it's Holistic Designs. If I just quickly bring that up, they don't really produce as much anymore. They usually just, you know, they're, they're licensing out the IP. But yeah, uh, yeah it's yeah, founded by founded in 1992, and obviously Bill yeah. Bridges and Andrew Greenberg are, you know, writers. And game develop, you know, developers for them. And the other thing to note with Fading Suns, we'll also quickly note, is there are some other games attached to it. Um, so you can find a miniatures game, which is for the space combat, which mm. is called Noble Armada. And you can find a live action role playing game based upon the Fading Sun setting called Passion Play. Which is also a term that turns up in Fading Suns, which we'll talk about later. And yeah. so again, you can, you can definitely see that there's, there's, um, there's a whole host of things which kind of make it feel like a White Wolf game, but it's not a White Wolf game. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, yeah. Um, so what is Fading Suns about? Now, this is, this is, it's, it's partly what I like about Fading Suns, but it's always, it's very difficult to boil what is Fading Suns down into a one-sentence descriptor. It's, it's not quite like, you know, Vampire the Masquerade or any of the White Wolf games where you go, well, it's vampires in the modern day. I suppose the easiest way to start with this one would be it's science fiction fantasy. So in the, and in the sense that, yes, it is definitely science fiction. It's set, what is it, 3,000 years in the future, but it's got a lot of the trappings of fantasy novels. Do you think I'm more or less on the right track here, Chris? Or? Um, I would say it <laughs> is... I think it fits the classic term of space opera, really. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can... Because obviously space opera allows you to uh, incorporate some over-the-top uh, fantastical elements compared to, say, harder science fiction settings. So yes. this is like, so it's like kind of like comparing, say, Star Wars to Star Trek: The Next Generation. I say Star Trek: The Next Generation because Star Trek: The Next Generation got, you know, bogged down in its own jargon and became more hard SF. Um, yeah, but that, that kind of that's a good starting point, anyway. Yeah. So you've so um, so you've got initially in your setup, you've got uh, um, you've got the traditional sort of space republic, which was I suppose that was a little. You could argue that that was a little bit that was very utopian, mm-hmm. and then that and then that you know and that was it was utopian. It was democratic, uh, and then that fell. 
and fell badly. And so you've now got, you know, which is something which is very much like a second Dark Age. Um, so you've got things like, and, so I'm sorry, the, um, what is it, the controlling system is very, uh, the- it's theocratic mm-hmm. and it's also feudal. So yes. if, we, if, if we start from the beginning, we, we sort of boil it down to what is your average person like in the Fading Suns universe, well, he's literally a serf. His life is very similar to what a serf would be during the Middle Ages in Europe. Mm. And he sits, and, and he would be sitting there, you know, tilling the fields in a very traditional way. But the overseer who looks after him, he may well have a laser rifle. And every so often, he would see well, he would see potentially a starship go past, and um, or or some kind of flying car. So, you, so the technology is there, um, but it's it's not evenly distributed. It's it's not a utopia. It's in the hands of really. What have we got? Sort of four different, fa- uh, three different main factions. Mm-hmm. You have you have the noble houses, you have the merchant guilds, and then you have the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's um it's a setting which obviously draws from a lot of of uh, literature inspiration. I mean, yeah. there's recognisably elements of uh, Dune, um, mm. Dan Simmons' uh, Hyperion Cantos. Um, and if you wanted to draw parallels to other settings um, that obviously draw from the same kind of kind of inspiration material, uh, Warhammer Forty Thousand is essentially is is the grimmer, darker version, and more insane version of Fading Suns. Because obviously, again, you've got this spread out humanity. You know, you've got this this church which which is representative of how humanity's gone a bit backwards, even though they've had all this amazing technology. You know, artificial intelligence, true artificial intelligence is banned. Um, and, you know, it's it's this fiefdoms and nobles and that, yeah, as you say, the average person is either living a maybe kind of a, a Middle Ages kind of lifestyle, or if they're lucky, maybe Victorian or somewhere yeah. in between. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so one of the one of the big things in the background, the background kind of builds on, and uh, I suppose that the cliche, uh, cliche is probably not the right term, but it's uh, what is the right term? Um, it's this idea that when humanity went to the stars, we discovered, of course, that someone had already been there. Mm-hmm. Um, so so when humanity sort of made it out, you know, just beyond, um, just to, uh, to the edges of our solar system, we discovered a jump gate. We discovered this massive artifact, which how would you describe it? It's probably um, well, Grab, well, grab your Fading Suns first edition, have a look at the cover, there's your jump gate. And it's, it's, I suppose it operates in a very similar manner to say the jump gates from Stargate SG-1, mm-hmm. only this, only this one's big enough to fly the Death Star. It's, through. it's the, it's the super gates which, um, yeah. which the, oh crap, I <laughs> think the Stargate, uh, the Ori use. Um, yeah. and yeah, the, the jump gates in Fading Suns, um, it's always hard to describe like how big they're meant to be because I guess there's kind of conflicting ideas on scale. But I think the idea is they're about the size of the moon. I think it's fair yeah. to say. And the moon works. As I said, I always, I always just said, you know, it's it's big enough to fit pretty much whatever you could conceivably want to want to get in there. Your star, you know, a ship as big as your star destroyer could um um can use it. And if it's if it's if it's bigger than a jump gate, then yeah, <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah, and. Hmm. It's, I guess, the way to describe it. Um, its its design is uh, is 
I guess the the best term is cyclopean because obviously it has these massive ornate either gargoyles or um or like or humanoid faces that adorn the entire circumference of these giant gates and yeah. um the 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 gates the important thing to note the gates have um are are a ring but then they have at each at each at 90 degrees there is a kind of a kind of a, a point like a a, a a portion of it which creates yeah. a kind of a ring with a cross and when it activates uh, i think i've seen in videos from the video game that the those sections kind of pull out and then enable and then the gate fires up and you know it creates its uh wormhole or whatever you want to call it um yeah, and they're massive, and so yeah, humanity discovered these, discovered a giant gate out in the, out in the Oort belt of uh, the solar system. So these gates are pretty far out. You know, you're using sublight speed drives to get from the inner system to the outer system to the Oort belt of star system. So that's where all the small things are, almost the very edges of the actual solar system. Yeah. And one of these things is hanging there. Hopefully at uh, one of the um, uh, what's the points? Is it a Kepler point? But you know it's able to it's able to it's able to sit there pretty much in in a, a set position. And yeah, they're massive. And um, I think the the setting describes how it took a while for humanity to work out how to get it to work, and eventually found that it was um, a series of uh, by accident a series of of um, a way of like firing laser light at the right component of it which activates it so you've basically got a way of triggering it by laser light and that's kind of the transmission code and that opened to one world but then obviously these gates can open to many more and Mm. you know you need to you need to know how to do that so you could work it out or you can discover things that can help guide you. So, in other words, more coordinates stored yeah. in the ruins of this race that created these massive, massive uh, jump gates. Yeah. So, yeah, so, humanity, um, humanity spreads throughout, begins to spread throughout the galaxy. Yeah. Um, well, sort of. Well, not so much the galaxy, but but more sort of through the jump gate network. Mm. Um, um, we discover that you know there's there's um, in addition to the jump gates. There are sort of ruins, obelisks, and you know, and statues and things scattered through. Um, we we discovered there's some on Mars, and it turns out, or it's it's believed that yes, you know, um, in eons past there were progenitor races. Uh, there was at least two of them, uh, which I think overall they get called the Anunnaki, which I'm probably mispronouncing the hell out of. Yeah. Um, and and they've obviously and their civilization has fallen. They've had some kind of war, and we're essentially you know running around with their leftover toys. When we when we go through the jump gates, we discover a, a couple of other races, um, some of which who have apparently who seem to have been uplifted by somebody. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously, so obviously these these Anunnaki. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we get we get yeah. um, a few races like that, um, and uh, I'm just trying to think what else. The the other important thing to say as humanity spreads through, I mean, yeah. So the the discovery of these uh, ancient ruins as well, they have um, quite important implications to um, humanity's relation to the greater universe and to things that fall outside of known science. Um, yeah. 
And also, travelling through a gate isn't quite that simple. Um, the first travellers through the gate experienced um, something known as the Saratha effect. Yeah. And so to explain, like, so these jump gates, uh, when when they're seen, it you, it's kind of like um, the jump gate is meant to project a image of the main world of of the system that you're travelling to. So you can see that, like, as an image uh, before the uh, wormhole of the gate that you go through. Now, whether it's a wormhole or not is another thing entirely to talk about. Absolutely, yeah. Is, and there's a whole thing related to that, because it's basically all about information, matter, transmatting, and all that kind of uh, craziness that goes on. And... The Saratha effect has uh, kind of a, an out-of-body experience for humans and other races that pass through the gates. Mm. And because of this, and because it, of its implication on being damaging to humanity, um, and the fact that people get obsessed just going through the gates as it is, um, that they have to put on these, uh, what they call jump, they have to install uh, jump engines on the ship, which yeah. is kind of a, a way of actually, uh, they lie about actually how the way of you, the ship is actually able to jump, because the ship has to have two main components to jump through a jump gate, which is one, something which activates the jump gate, which tells it where you want to jump to, and and the other part is what they call the jump drive engine, which is actually it isn't required. It's actually something that just projects a field that stops the Saratha effect. Yeah, that's true. Because you know, um, um, the, the the powers that be at the time, because um, at at at, um, at this particular point in the timeline, um, the people mm. who of course the people who of course discover the jump gate are uh, you know the what are they called the uh, the um, the Zaibatsus, you know the, mm. the 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 inheritors of mega corporations who, have, who yeah. of course have the who of course have the resources to get out there in the first place, and uh, the Zarathans then become something of a cult. The reason actually the reason why it's called Zaratha is because that's the that's after you experience this effect, that's a word that everyone says. It just you just kind of whisper it and don't quite know where that came from. Mm. Uh, so so they install these shields to to mask the um, the Zaratha effect, and you know that sort of you know dies off. You know the um it, it still exists, but it's very much in the shadows. So uh, let me think. So condensing down a couple of thousands of years of of backstory. So yes, humanity then spreads out to the stars. And they establish. Well, we'll shall we? We'll, uh, we'll skip over a little bit here because there's a lot to get through. Um, they they establish a republic, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, and then and then that falls. And then I think that uh, and then that they establish the second republic, which is the greatest republic. It's um, you know humanity knows no want. Technology is um, um, the tech the, uh, the tech level for everyone is fantastic. Diseases are cured. All that sort of thing. And then of course that falls. That falls itself. They have um, a massive tech revolt. So I, I, I would suppose in, similar in a little bit to the way the Butlerian Jihad is mm-hmm. described in June. Um, and around that time, they then of course just, um, discover the phenomenon where the series gets its name: the fading suns. Yeah. The suns themselves, all the stars that humanity occupies, are beginning to fade. And the church that's popped up, the Church of the Celestial Sun, which we'll come back to later, mm-hmm. they come to the interpretation that 
this is God, or what's he called, the Empyrean now, this is God's uh, punishment for humanity and the other races for their hubris, mm-hmm. for um, um, for them trying to um, raise themselves up to be like gods. So it then comes to turn that, no, your average human has to, has to be stupid. Your average human can't handle knowledge. Your average human has to live a simple, simple life. And the only people who, who can't, who can't live their lives are the chosen people. They are, uh, they are church members. They are people who, they are people of high breeding, so the nobility, and they are people in the merchant guilds. Because the church came up with, of course, the great problem, which is we are, we are claiming technology is wrong, but we still, you know, need it. We still, mm-hmm. we still need to be able to get from planet to planet. We still need to be able to move around and spread the good Lord's word. Yeah, I, I mean, um, there's, there's a few things with that. So, so the fun, the, the fun facts are with the, the whole term of the fading suns is that all the stars you can see in the sky are dimming and they're dimming at a, due to something. So obviously we even now, you know, in just normal technology can determine the age of a sun and, and how long it should, should live because we look at, uh, the map, we can determine from its light, um, how big that star is and where it sits on the kind of the scale of, of solar masses. So we can estimate how long the star should live. And, the fading suns phenomenon doesn't follow physics. So the stars are uh, becoming darker at a, at a rate that doesn't match what we know about stars. And so it is also, it kind of builds into the whole idea of a dark age te- of technology is there is yeah. a literal dark age occurring. Yes, it's, it's, it's very, it's a little bit thematically similar to things like Gehenna mm-hmm. and things like, things like the Apocalypse and the White Wolf games. You know, this, this belief that, well, the stars are fading. This is, these are truly the last days. So, and, and the church plays that up to their advantage. You know, so it's, it's, you know, it's, the apocalypse is on its way. So you'd better make sure you have everything in order, that sort of thing. So this church, how would you describe them? Ah, well, I mean, it's, once again, the, the phrase church is a little bit, it's, it's an overall, the Church of the Celestial Sun, it's, it's an overall claim. Um, there's a bunch of smaller factions within it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which how, we can get, we'll get back to the individual factions. I'll just kind of I, get at, at the, um, the origin of them and kind of the flavour, because I would describe the, the Church of the Celestial Sun is kind of like a, a, a neo-futuristic, uh, Catholicism of, of yeah yeah absolutely yeah um, which has basically grown out of uh, the need to incorporate the best of all earthly re- religions that predated it and centers around um, a, a prophet I guess is the easiest way to describe him known as yeah. uh, Zebulon um, so what more can we say about Zebulon? I'm, I'm off the top of my head and I haven't got the book open here because I'm looking at some of my notes. Um, how does Zebulon become so important? Well, he's, a, he's um, I suppose, for his time, because remember this is 3,000 years in the future, mm-hmm. he's, he is as important as Muhammad. He is as important as Jesus. Um, so he popped up and he was, he was, he claims to have been given a vision of the star, um, 
um, a vision of heaven, a vision of the Empyrean by um, by the Pan Creator. That's that's the term. That's the game's um, term for God. And yeah, he gathered his apostles and he spread the good word. Um, in the game itself, it's a little bit it's it's dubious as to what he was beforehand. Um, so you know, some say he was uh, he was a Catholic. Some say he was a Catholic out preaching the word of God. Others say you know, others say he was a um, he was a Muslim out preaching word of the word of Muhammad. That's all kind of um, been lost to the mists of time. And so that's uh, so. But yeah, it's 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 very much kind of space space Catholicism. Um, they specifically use a lot of Latin. Mm-hmm. That's that's it's it's that's this now dead language is actually I think I think a lot of them speak in Latin actually don't they Yeah yeah they do they even code yeah. in it um, <laughs> That's true it's a, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful idea that one Yeah so so Zebulon is this um is this new prophet um who has a vision of the holy flame and the the, the point right. about the holy flame is he's basically preaching I would say it's kind of like he's preaching a concept of of which is if you were fully enlightened to the meaning of his teachings, it would be very Gnostic. Yeah. But for the pe- for the lay per- laity, it's it's not Gnostic at all. Because the whole when I say Gnostic is because he's preaching the idea of the Holy Flame, which is this divine spirit that is the Pancreator and rest in the Imperium, and. He's saying that, you know, within us all and within all stars, there is a spark of the holy flame. And that it's up to us to kind of like, you know, tap into that divinity that lies within all of us. Mm. And of course, you know, the whole point is that the church is meant to be guiding people to understand how to unlock that divinity within them. But if you do that, you kind of like, you don't then really have control on people. So this is the kind of the paradox of what the church is in some respects. Mm. And it becomes a universal theology because obviously it's not just humans that follow this, but slowly other races follow it because one of his disciples that he has, um, is in fact one of the alien races, uh, in the setting. So, yeah, the church is the church is interesting, and as I say, there's different factions within the church. Um, and in this in this sense, there's a very much a five. There's a three by five model. So there's three factions that have five sub factions. Um, yeah. So in some respects, it's it's very uh, prophetic of how New World of Darkness turns up. Um, and, Absolutely, yeah. And um, you know, there's a variety of how these uh, these priests act. And yeah, so we're up to the dark age of technology, aren't we? So there's kind of like, mm. yeah, there's the, there's that kind of fall, and then there's the fall of the mega corporations and Zaibatsu who are behind um, the republics, and from those we get the two other factions, um, which are the nobility and the merchant league. Um, so the best way to describe it, the nobility is uh, essentially they are. They are sub-factions within the, the megacorps, within the Zaibatsu, who use their position to rewrite their own history, to portray themselves as old nobility, and to, to lay claim onto, onto the uh, portions of these falling corporations. So, for example, some people claim they're descended from uh, the House of Windsor. Uh, some others may claim they're descended from Tsarist Russia, um, and you know, so from 
uh, the czars themselves. Some would even claim they're descended from, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, dynasty emperors. And so you get these, these, there's, again, there's five main noble houses. And they're basically the main point of the noble houses is they, they, they've carved up the known worlds into worlds they have full control over and areas of worlds that they don't have control over but they own some of the land of and obviously they have you know trade agreements and some houses are more um antagonistic to others and there are minor houses yeah. as well which that have less influence and of course they did have influence but falling out of power and the merchant league in that respect then are the remnants of the of the democratic part of the the megacorps because they still hold on to the old ideals while also trying to maintain the the lost technology. Mm. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, what else? What else? What else can we say? So, so, so that kind of gives you the overall setup. You know, that kind of gives you the the long to mid term back history of the game. Now, the short term history of the game uh, sort of was so sort of um, sort of fifty to twenty years before sort of the default beginning um, beginning year of the game. We had the Emperor Wars, which I think how would you best describe them? Probably quite similar, maybe a little bit to the Civil War that you had um, portrayed in Game of Thrones, where sort of each um, where each um, each noble house went to war to try and determine who was going to basically who um uh, who was going to be able to declare themselves emperor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in um so currently in the current storyline, uh, the current emperor is what's his name is I'm going to muck it up doesn't matter the um the Hawkwood um family yeah. have taken yeah it's an um, emperor Alexis is yeah. the current ru- ruler of the known worlds, and so so in the aftermath of this war he is set up. The Questing Knights, which is which is a group which is going to go out and try and rediscover some of what has been lost. Perhaps try and rediscover technology. Perhaps try and rediscover worlds. Because it's it's possible to um, essentially turn your start um, turn your jump gate off if yes. you um, you can you can fire a particular program at it, which will either shut it down completely completely or we'll put it on a timer for several centuries and a couple of worlds during the emperor war or during the dark age of technology chose to do this or the other thing that would have happened is that people would have lost the jump gate keys so um these are um these are small kind of like uh, i would say palm-sized cylinders which you plug into your jump computer in your ship and they 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 have a jump key can have either one or many uh, uh, jump codes which would allow you to to jump along um, from one jump gate to another uh, or an entire route even. So you have to, each time you go from one gate into another and then you have to go back into that gate and then out into the next one. And uh, so there's a, there's a, there's a wonderful map um, of the, of the known worlds. So, of um, all the jump gates, uh, because of course, as as you said, there's um, you know some of these worlds are lost, and um, the the known worlds as they are is a mere fraction of what uh, the old Second Republic was. Um, cool. 
Um, of course, there was a emperor, there was a war for an emperor before um, Alexis Hawkwood came came into a power. Uh, that was um, when Vladimir was uh, <laughs> yeah. brought to power. Um, he was an interesting fellow because uh, he came to power with his own uh, with his own house and on house, his house house electo, if I if I recall, that was it. Yeah, and on his coronation. Um, he died, um, uh, and apparently that is due to the influence of demons, um, mm. which we'll get to. Is there anything else we need to say about the main setup of the game? So I think we're. Uh, we... I think we've. I think we've. Pretty, that's. Uh, it's as I said. Look, it's that's 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 as much as a rough overview as I think we can give you. Um, but that pretty much brings us to the current game time of what is it? I think it's the year five thousand and twelve. The year five thousand and thirteen. Um, yeah. The thing which the thing which the writers put in was the and I, I don't know if this is still the case. I haven't seen the most recent edition of the game. Was um, the game year always corresponded to what the current year was? Just three thousand years in mm-hmm. the future. Yeah. So at the at the time of printing, it was of course the year was it it was the year three thousand and nine. You know, it was the year three thousand nine hundred and ninety six. Mm-hmm. And now we're up to and um and now we're up to four thousand and thirteen. Was it five thousand thirteen? Need to look it up. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I I guess I guess the the thing we can now say is the overall view of how you can there's many ways you can actually really play this game. You can play. A very um, local game that is restricted to one world or one system, or you can play something that gallivants around a portion of the known worlds, or you can go off exploring and try and find lost worlds and 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 fighting the barbarians at the outside of the known worlds. And you have because you've got the um, these three factions: nobility, which are all jockeying for position. Uh, with the Emperor, and you've got the Merchant League who are all jockeying for position to be the one making the most money, and also to maintain their technology in the face of the Church. Yeah. And you've got the Church, which is also jockeying for position because they want to be... There's always going to be the one faction that wants to have the most influence over the direction of humanity. And you've got... You can end up with quite... You've got basically the setup for a very Byzantine kind of uh, politics and conspiracies and you know small skirmishes between between factions and uh, as they're trying to you know grab ancient artifacts or gateways to lost worlds or um, or just pieces of technology and that's really cool. I mean it's it's a it's it's got quite a epic amount of setting that's quite I would say it's, accessible because yeah, it's, it's it's incredibly well fleshed out. Now, I mean this 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 wasn't a small game line. This wasn't a, this wasn't a one or two book deal. There's no, something that's... like there's something like 25 books. Mm-hmm. I think it's about I've got most of them. I think it's about, you know, it, it it's a good foot of my bookshelf. So then yeah. It's it's the only thing I can really compare it to, I think, um, in terms of the detail that they've gone into in fleshing out every single corner of this of, of this background. Uh, I think you can. I think in in terms of what's available role playing game wise, which, which isn't a licensed work, you know, it's not something like the Star Wars role playing game or something. Mm-hmm. It's um, I think it's oh, it's it, in terms of its peers, we're talking Traveller, and maybe we're talking BattleTech. But that's really it for this for this sort of. Um, 
but those are really the only other games where if, if you're playing that sort of a space opera where you've got your sort of role-playing's own original IP. Yeah, I would say the only the only setting that obviously competes for it for um for telling uh almost a similar kind of setting but where everything's been turned to 11 which changes which obviously changes the tone and the mood and the type of stories you can play is Warhammer 40,000. So if you were playing say Rogue Trader which I have read the book to that, is there's very much, there are lots of similar elements between the two games, but because of the, um, because of the very nature of the Warhammer 40,000 universe, because it's so massive in its, in its scope, like its scope is so much more massive than Fate and Sons, it oh, yeah. changes the accessibility in the sense that it's, it's detailed, but the, but I would say the density of the detail is different because obviously Fading Suns is dealing with, say, what? Uh, you've got a lot of information that covers, say, these 15 main factions that are spread out over the best part of 20 worlds. Yes. And, like and Warhammer 40,000 has, like, <laughs> a notoriously yes. massive forces spread out over the entire damned galaxy. And, yeah, yeah, we've, and we've, so we've, we've discussed that a couple of times where yeah. it was, um, and it, it's it, depending on how you play it. You know, the scale of Warhammer 40 can always be, you know, I, I, I imagine it can be daunting for new GMs, and mm-hmm. it can be a little bit of a problem. But I mean, particularly in um, in Rogue Trader, where it's the case of um, you, where it's the case of the main PCs are running a, you know, they have their own ship, and it's got a crew of, you know, two thirds of a million. Yeah, and it's <laughs> and it's like, and you know, it's it's like, all right, well. Let's go down to the planet. Or we should send, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's send an underling to go down to the planet. I would almost argue that for something like, um, for something like Rogue Trader, it'd, it'd be worth playing troop play, where each, where each mm-hmm. player has multiple, you know, has multiple characters, because he, he just couldn't, you just, yeah, you just, you just couldn't imagine like Rogue Trader himself going down to the planet, because no, I'm going to stay here because I'm the leader of this ship. It's it's almost written that way. In fact, it's almost yeah. just that the GM plays the rogue trader and everyone else gets given the orders because um, it makes it it makes it a little bit because again your issue there is um is player agency because obviously you don't want to get players to be intimidated by having to make a choice. Anyway, um, so that kind of contrasts the kind of the play style. So I guess we should maybe look at the factions in a little bit more detail. Mm. Or, okay. Or, um, we'll quickly say this, because obviously you've mentioned this, but, so, also, again, to get the scale of the setting, the spaceships are, um, I always like to imagine that the largest spaceship you've got in the setting is about the size of, um, almost the size of, like, say, a Star Destroyer, like, yeah, at the biggest. The, that's, the, that's about as huge as they get, yeah. I think in, I think technically in their canon the the ships don't quite get that big, but I kind of like that kind of you know uh, imperial kind of scale and you know to give you a sense of like what those are like. And there's always something fun like you know the fact that you've got say the player character's troop they're um they've got some small transport vessel yeah. which piggybacks on large trading vessels and so they jump into a system and then once they're there they get you know pulled in they basically ride all the way into the into the main system because yeah. their ship does does just does not have the fuel capacity to get them that far and then it drops yeah, out a, 
and it's a, th- does the rest of the journey. Yeah, it's it's a little bit similar to the Hayliner idea from mm. from the Dune universe. Cool, but, but but also yeah, but also also I mean um if, if this might be us getting sidetracked, but um yeah, in, in sort of keeping with with uh, the rest of the background, there was kind of no need to ever build massive ships of scale. There was no need to ever build you know massive generation ships because you know when you fired up the jump gate. The jump gates never, to the best of my knowledge, never led to a dead system. There was always, there was always, mm-hmm. um, an Earth-like world in there. So it was all, so they never had to pack, you know, and they never had to pack for a massive, you know, sort of generational journey. So the ships never had to be, you know, huge and then they never had to pack in all these vital systems because yeah, ultimately, you know, they, they were always knew for a hundred percent that they were going to get somewhere. Yeah. And. Also, you can, the, because of the, the, the sheer scale of the gates, um, you would have one gate, you would have, you could actually have, um, you would have convoys. So actually, you would have one ship tasked with opening the gate, and the rest would follow it through. Yeah. So you, you didn't have to have just like one ship carrying everything. You could, you could have just, you could have like 40 go through. One opens the gate and leads everything through. And then once they get to whichever world, they spread out as they see fit. Um, cool. So, I guess we should start at... Uh, who should we start with? Should we start with the nobility? Because well, they're kind of interesting, I guess. They're kind of fun. Um, um, so, we've got five main noble houses, the known worlds. And they're known as House Hawkwood, House Decados, House Hazat, well... House Hazat, but they're known as the Hazat. House <laughs> Lihalan and House Al Malik. So immediately from those names, you kind of get a sense of one of them is very much a kind of House Atreides style, kind yeah. of neo neo European uh, neo French English European house uh, that takes the best of like House Habsburg and House Win- uh, House of Windsor and you know the houses of Bourbon and so forth. House Decados um, sound as decadent as their name, yeah. but they're they're, kind of, they're almost your sort of default. Hawkwood are your sort of are your de- um, are your default quotation fingers. Good house and Decados are your default um, sort of evil house. They're, they're they're sort of the the house Harkonnen of the yeah. of, um, of the setting. I've never really, to be honest, I didn't quite like exactly how they were portrayed sometimes, but so I kind of look at them as trying to get them as close to being as. Uh, you know, kind of czarist Russia, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, and the most decadent parts of say, um, oh, I guess the most decadent parts you could say of like uh, Venetian merchant uh, nobility. Um, okay, and then we have the Hazat, and they're basically your Spanish conquistadors. So they're basically Spanish and Portuguese nobility. Uh, they're totally into fencing and sword fighting, uh, and they have an interesting relationship with a lost house known as House Chalkai. Um, the Hazat also have uh, a interesting issue because their main homeworld is very near to these barbarian human. We use the term barbarian in quotation marks. Barbarian humans who exist outside of the known worlds. Um, who are known as the Kurgan Caliphate, who are kind of like your, um, I guess if you were to sum them up, they're kind of like your, your, your non-Muslim, your pre, <laughs> your, your pre-Islamic 
Persians, they're more kind of, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the term, yeah, classic old school Persia, uh, before like the coming of Muhammad. Um, so, uh, that's kind of who they're up against. Uh, you've got the Li Halan, who are, apparently, that they've become this very, um, pious, uh, nobility, um, due to some dodgy history of their house with dealing with trafficking with demons and, uh, and, uh, devil worship in that sense, and also, uh, ancestor worship. Uh, though the ancestor worship obviously makes sense because when you listen to their name, Li Halan, you get the classic ideas of, uh, of, uh, Chinese, uh, warring states, dynastic houses, and of course then you can incorporate into them if you want kind of the elements of like shogunate, uh, Japan. And then finally we've got House Al-Malik, who sound exactly as you would think. Uh, they're basically your, your, uh, merchant house. They're totally in, in bed with them, with the, uh, merchant league. They love technology. And they're again, kind of your, your, your more Islamic Persian flavored house in comparison to the caliphate. Um, and, yeah, that's um that's those are the five main houses. Um and there are numerous small houses who don't hold as much power. Uh, and then also there are lost houses and houses that are apparently uh extinct. Um so Pete, what did you uh, want to comment on those? Oh, I think you, I think you pretty much had everything, had everything, um, covered there. Um, we've got a lot to get through, so, um, how about I talk a little bit about the Merchant League? Yeah, go for it. Alright, so, so your Merchant League, they, of course, you know, um, they are, they cover keeping, keeping the machinery running. So, your five factions with the word, so your five factions within them, you start off with the Charioteers, who are probably the most respected of all the guilds, because, well, they keep the ships running. Um, we, we spoke a little bit before about the jump keys, uh, they maintain that technology. Nobody else has access to jump keys but them. So, if you want to get anywhere, you need to go and see, um, you need to have the merchants on your side. And I think, I think they can actually cut you off from space travel. So uh, they're a little bit similar to, well, in that regard, they're similar to, who were they? They're similar to the jump slugs, whatever the hell they were called. <laughs> oh, um, navigators. Yeah. They're, 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 uh, so basically your, 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 your pilot, if you're like a noble house, your pilot would be, would be in, yeah, would be on your side. In, in matters of conflict between houses, but is ultimately on the side of the charioteers. So he, hmm. he's, he's sanctioned by the charioteers to carry jump gate, jump keys on your behalf. Um, yeah. And yeah, they, they make all the spaceships. Well, they, they, they keep all design and keep them going. Um, yeah, that, that's quite simple. I guess they're also the, they're the group that train, uh, primarily behind the, tr- the, the training of pilots for the uh, houses because obviously the houses want fighter pilots and and so forth um yeah hmm mm. cool uh, we've also got the supreme order of engineers now and once again these ones um like the charioteers these ones are pretty much exactly what they sound like they keep the machinery running they have access to um well they have access to what's left of second republic technology and while they can't sort of um build a lot of it they can maintain a lot of the stuff that is left 
So everyone wants to keep um, them on side. We've also got, on top of them, we've also got, who have we got? We've got the Muster, who are sort of the labour union. They've, they, uh, what else? Sorry, I'm sorry, what do the Muster do? Um, they're, they're interesting. They're, they're sorry, kind of like, it. no, it's cool. Um, yeah, so as you said, they, they look after, like, uh, human resources. Um, I think that also, if I remember reading, it's not there. Their nickname is Chainers, so obviously that's relation to the fact they also, um, they operate the, uh, a form of, I guess you could say, a form of slavery, even though slavery is illegal. But volunteered labor. Volunteered yeah. labor. Um, <laughs> and they're also behind, like, uh, food manufacture, because obviously if they're gonna, if they're going to maintain such work, large workforces, they also understand how to feed their, their, uh, their people. Mm. So that's the who we've spoken about. That was the muster. We've also got the reeves, who are I suppose the reeves are your lawyers and your bankers. You still need, uh, even in the far future, you still need laws to be drafted up. Mm-hmm. You still need um, jurisprudence, scholarship, those sorts of things. You know, um, um, people to run your economics. Yeah, I guess it's also important. They're kind of like um, they're they're very much a callback to the original banks. Um, you know, set up like, you know, as I say, like, like in Venice where the first bank was, because of course, um, communication in Fading Suns, there is no faster than light travel, and there is no faster than light communication, so it's not yeah. like you can just send the message easily from one world to another world through the jump gate, it just, you can't send signals through the jump gate like that, so you have to have ships carrying messages, so there's gonna be ships of the Reeves, you know, carrying gold bullion, carrying uh, bankers' notes, and you know, if you're travelling between worlds and you don't want to carry all your your money with you, obviously, you would dump it in one bank and get a banker's draft, and so when you land at the other world, you go, well, here's my banker's draft, I want this amount of money. So, um, you know, that's, that's, it's a callback to the classic, you know, pre-communications technology banking. Yeah. And finally there, you've got the Scravers Guild, who, um, they're officially, they're the Scavengers Guild, and it's their job to, you know, try and get, um, Second Republic technology working again, trying to see every, you know, trying to see what they can salvage. Um, they're also sort of, um, on top of that, they're actually, uh, something of a crime syndicate, I suppose. <laughs> they, they, they would be, they would be, um, uh, I suppose the dodgiest of all the guilds. Yeah, and, I mean, as it says, they're involved with, like, racketeering, information brokers, hitmen, thugs, casino shots. I think you could also, like, I think maybe some of the other, because there's a few other minor houses that mostly fall under their umbrella, so I guess they also have their fingers in the the, uh, entertainment industry. Mm. So on some of the worlds that have, like, cinemas and so forth, because there are worlds that are still that developed, um... It would make sense they're involved in that because that entertainment is one step away from just, you know, full on drugs use and so forth. And that seems to be their kind of, uh, thing. Cool. And yeah, as I said, so, um, I'm just going to look at quickly at the minor guilds. Like there's minor guilds that are like, you know, about there's the brewers, the bureaucrats, the carnivaliers, the courtesans, the, <laughs> the, brewers uh, are very important. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the town criers, the, uh, the word rights. So, you know, again, there's there's a lot of scope in many of these books with the minor houses or in this case the minor guilds that you can really 
have a character that in a party that is quite unique and has a very uh, distinctive feel to them. Yeah. So the church. Ah, the church. Wow. Okay, this is fun, isn't it? (laughs) Do you want to start with Earth Orthodox and tell us about that? Oh, and the Earth Orthodox. Well, I mean, the Earth Orthodox. Sorry, I'm losing my losing my voices here. Uh, The Earth Orthodox are kind of, if you want to play, I suppose, a default priest, or if you want to play, or if you want to play a character who is. Uh, who isn't kind of factionalized. The Earth Orthodox is where you would go. Um, the vast majority of the priests would be Earth Orthodox. And, and by Earth, it's the interesting spelling of the way we spell it. It's with a U, so it's sort of Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think there's much more to say beyond them. They're just, they are the classic priest. Um, uh, you know, the type of things they'll do is like, you know, christenings or whatever you want to call it, naming uh, naming ceremonies and you know funerals and uh, and confession and uh, things like that. I guess you know you can also play them. Uh, you, uh, this mostly turns up in their minor sets. You know you can play them to like being the historian or or the uh, or uh, even a, even they could even be like the the doctor of the party quite easily. But then, there, yeah. as I say, there's, there's minor faction. There's other factions of the of the church who aren't Earth Orthodox, who are very um, mm-hmm. kind of cool. So, yeah. Brother Battle, these guys. <laughs> everybody, are... everybody, everybody loves the Brother Battle. If you if you want to play a paladin, if mm-hmm. you want to play the closest the closest thing this setting has to a Space Marine, that's the way you go. Yeah, because they actually you can get in the game Space Marine armor essentially for them, so, fully yeah. fully enclosed. Um, uh, blessed battle armor, and yeah, the best. Yeah, yeah. There's there's not much more you can really say about them other than they've been particularly important in skirmishes against uh, particular aliens, in particular against the um, it's against the symbiotes, aren't they? They're quite important because absolutely, yeah. Of um, the fact that the church call upon, uh, I guess. Uh, you could basically call it. Uh, they call upon theurgy. So the setting has, the setting does have magic, and it does have uh, holy rituals, which is theurgy. It does have psionics, and it does have other things. Um, and so obviously, you know, the church needs people who are good in battle that can uh, throw around some holy retribution. Absolutely. Uh, which brings us onto the eschatonic order, then. So. Um, what can we say about these guys? No, the eschatonic order. I guess they kind of sum up the the whole Gnostic part that I was saying earlier. I guess about the church. Yeah, they, absolutely. They, um, I guess, I mean, the way the write up for them on the wiki and you know, from, which comes from books of courses, is you know, they're the soothsayers and mystics and madmen, maybe, but they're kind of like, but they follow the teachings of the of of Zebulon and the Pancreator. So. They they bring into the church what would have been at one time considered heretical teachings and and dangerous kind of magics, but as I said, they came into their own because theurgy proved useful against the symbiote invasion. So these symbiotes, these a very strange alien race. Um, we can we can we can get to them a little bit. Yeah, later. Like there is, we have serious and we have a lot to cover. This is a, it's a very well fleshed out. 
Very well yeah. fleshed out background. And then, of course, the group which kind of, <laughs> I guess, mirrors, or is the dark reflection or the uh, the natural antagonist, really, of the eschatonics, Temple of Vesti. Um, Pete, how would you describe Temple of Vesti? The Vestis are your inquisitors. If if you want, they are the play. They are the choice for a player character, which that guy is going to want to play. So um, they are the ones who despise technology. They are the, they will root out those who are who are looking to. Um, they, they they will they will they will root out you know the learned people. They will root out. Um, uh, they will root out demon worshippers, and they have flame guns. They will literally burn away the infection. Yeah, um, so, they... so there's there's a lot of scope with there's a lot of scope with these guys. You can have um, they have their own. What is it? They're they're based on a fire planet. That whole, and so they're all about taking the holy flame quite literally to the pancreator's enemies. And they wear red flame-proof holy robes, um, which sums them up quite nicely. Yeah, they they're um they make brilliant antagonists of the game as well. Because <laughs> yeah. obviously the, the thing is obviously like when you've got a group of players and with our modern contemporary morals and so forth, and obviously people may play playing characters that they can relate to more easily. So you don't kind of it's very hard to relate to a bunch of screaming pyromaniac <laughs> church nutters. So yeah, you're um, often like, and you, when you see them and they start spouting nonsense, you're like, just piss off, will you? Um, <laughs> which is often the answer to them. Um, and then, so finally, well, well that's, oh, we that's I, mean, I mean, we, we can talk a little bit about the investing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's sort of the thing. I mean, unless you have, and it, it depends on on where you are in the known world, um, but unless you're a noble, or you know, or unless you're a, unless you're a noble, unless you're a member of one of these factions, unless you have a damn good reason to be able to read, unless you have a damn good reason to have a piece of technology, they will quite literally brand you on the forehead. They mm-hmm. have they have got their own symbol, and it will and it will brand you as well, not so much a traitor, but it will they will people, people yeah. as a heretic. Yeah, people people will be, will be literally able to see your sin. So of course you'll end up with somebody wanting to play one who's who, who will then run off and and brand another PC and then you'll have internal conflict. So yeah, that's that's the way it always happens. And so finally we're on to Sanctuary Aeon, who are um They're the healers, aren't they? They are they are they're basically the, the healers. They're the they're hmm. the, the, the the holy hands. They are um there's there's not there's not much more really that really sums them up in one good way. I mean that's something pretty much very good about uh, all the factions in all the main factions of Fate Sons is that you can sum up the concept behind all of them in in a in a sentence very quickly. So it's very easy to sell players on like well this is what this faction is. It's an archetype, but obviously yeah. there's a lot of room within the archetypes to to play about with it. Um, cool. Well, that's all the main factions, and um, there are. Hold on, let me just quickly go into into um, minor church sets. Let me just see. Oh, there's a few, but it's not as many as the other ones. There's some. Okay, so for example, there's one church set which is which is a, a sanctioned part of the church, which is uh, led by the Ur Oban, who are the who are one of these alien races, and who uh, a member of that race was in fact a. Uh, a disciple of of uh, Zebulon, the the prophet. Um, but yeah, you know, there's there's a few 
small factions in there, and there's there's a list of of uh, heresies and so forth. Um, but that's all the main factions, really. Um, it's important to note then that while you have all these noble houses and merchant leagues and uh, the Universal Church, that the questing knights essentially fall outside of those groups because the questing knights is, is the is something set up by the emperor as a way of establishing his own power base that is separate from his house. Uh, so he he's obviously from House Hawkwood, but he wants to have his power base as a separate as something above everything else. So yeah. your group questing knights will have a group of questing uh, an entourage of questing uh, merchants and questing church priests. And so while you may come from different factions of the nobles, the league and the church, you're bound together by the fact that you're all actually operating for the emperor. And hmm. that that's cool because it, it gives you kind of it gives your group of players a little bit of leverage when they need it. Because they can basically march around going that they're they're working on the on on the orders of the church and they can show their papers and the seal of the emperor and everyone goes, Oh, okay or uh, kill them. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of cool, you know. And it's the fact that it allows them to requisition things like a like a like a spaceship if they need it. Um, cool. Um, anything more to say there with the main factions of humanity? Well, I think. Well, um, we've talked about yeah. So we've talked about the factions a bit. We can now, of course. There are aliens in this, and you can, you, if you want to play an alien character, there is a whole bunch of, oh. there is a, there is, we can, we can get to that if you like, we could, this, this could be oh, a very long do, night, Chris. Should we do the, should we do the <laughs> rundown? Okay, score bites. They're basically human-sized, uh, human-sized insects. Bugs, really? Yeah. They're most closely related to, say, uh, mosquitoes. Um, I've had a player, players one, they're fun, they're great, they're <laughs> weird. Um, uh, they have their own world, they live in a hive mind, but some scorpions get uh, cut off from the hive mind. Uh, you have the Atari, who are avian. Uh, they're based bird men, um, capable of flight, live in a kind of a place where they fly around lots. Not much more to say about them. Band the aliens, yeah. I'll be honest, the aliens I didn't use too much in my setting, because I think sometimes they're a bit too... It's that firefly thing. Sometimes... You don't want to get into the thing of of the Star Trek thing of it's an a, an alien is a human with a weird face. At least the aliens. Yeah, I agree have... with you in there. It was it, it was always something I would always you know keep the aliens either they would pop up as flavor, but they kind of weren't the main point. Whenever I would play Star Wars, it would be something like that. I'd, I'd end up with a bunch of player characters. Everybody wants to play an alien, and there was no humans, so I was like, no, kind of humans are the kind of the point, or at least that's the way I play it. And yeah, I try to steer people away from aliens. Yeah, they can be, can't they? Yeah. Like, it's like the Ganon. The Ganon are basically, uh, you know, sentient apes. And they're apparently mechanics, and they do practical jokes. So they're a bit like yeah, the, yeah uh, they're they're, really, they're they're comedy. Yeah, yeah. Well, they can be. Uh, yeah. They're the fading sun's version of the Chikaro in Warhammer Forty Thousand. Yeah, I'm showing my. Oh God, I remember. I remember my them, yeah. Knowledge of that setting because obviously it's like that game. Oh, um, the Heronum. Uh, oh, hold on, I can't remember these guys. What was special about? Oh, they're your reptiles. They're your classic reptiles. Uh, not much yeah. more to say about them. Uh, native to a particular world, blah blah blah. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, also, also remember in in this setting, um, aliens you know, don't have much position. Aliens that... have very few rights, and um, um, if you show up in particular worlds, you know, you will get 
pulled to pieces. You will get torn apart. So so you really have to be careful when you're an alien and um and, and where you travel. It's it's very much humanity's world and you know and um the the setting doesn't spend a lot of time going into there is one other big faction of aliens, we'll get to in a second, but they're kind of the one only big alien faction. Um, but it's, it's very much about humans and about people, and um, yeah, he, uh, the aliens tend not to get around so much when they're when they're leaving their home worlds. We can let's who else have we well, got? The, the, oh no, I was going to say the before the O oh, no the Oroyum who are aquatic sentients. I'm trying to remember what, how they drew them. They looked kind of like um oh shoot, what do they kind of look like? I wanna. Uh, well, they they weren't cephalopods. That would have been a bit too crazy. But yeah, you know, again, they mostly. I'm trying to think, they might be a bit kind of like fish, kind of frog-like. Not quite Admiral Akbar, but you know, you get the idea. <laughs> uh, the Shantor, yeah. I never. Oh God! Thought, I never uh, used them either. You can have uh, you can have um, thirty thirty flashbacks from um, from Lone Star if you remember that children's <laughs> television show. Green <laughs> Star. Brave Star, I'm sorry, it was Brave Star, wasn't Lone Star. The Shantor are horse, are basically, they're basically sentient horses. Um, and, you know, they have technology which kind of like, they, cause they don't have proper arms, they draw upon the idea of like they live, they've been forced onto reservations. So there's this whole kind of, of, uh, you know, alludes to kind of the, you know, America's, you know, America's colonization and treatment of native, of Native Americans. And of course, I guess that, that also has an allusion to the same thing that happened, that, you know, happened historically anywhere else in the world, wherever anyone from, from Britain or Europe went. So, you know. Yeah. It's um, I think if you if you really want to put them into your game, put you know use it use it your peril because you know it, the potential for unwanted comedy is there. You'll get a, you'll get a million Mister Ed jokes. Yeah, it's not. I think you could get the same flavor with the whole idea of like an alien race forced onto a reservation and do that kind of um, uh, discussion and kind of. And look and and look at the implications of colonization, and look at like what's happened in our own history, and and use it as a proper form of discussion, and do some mm. solid role play from that. I think there's there's actually a lot of good you could do from that. A lot of, it'd be really interesting, but I think I would not have the Shantor as being so Native American. I would try and make them a bit more unique. Because that's the problem. It's sometimes too. Again, this is a this is such a problem in sci-fi stuff. Is that often we're limited by our own experiences in writing. So sometimes some races just come off as let's put X race, let's put X group of hu- of humans on planet Y and recap yeah. as animal Z. And it's just like oh god. Um, okay, the two more interesting ones are the Urban. And the Ur Kar. So the Ur Uban are one of the races known as the Children of Ur, having close connection to the Anukai. Uh, they are the light bringers. These are basically pacifist kind of, I want to say, I want to say they're kind of the answer to elves in space. Uh, a little bit, yeah. A little bit. Because the Ur Kar are the, uh, darkest, are they the darkest group? Oh no, wait. 
the 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 Obana the darker skin ones, the Yukara are the light skin ones because they elf. they live underground. There, if, if if you want to if you want to stretch the elf analogy, they you drow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have like scarification, and they went to war with humanity and the church, and that's where they play into it because they went to war with humanity and. Uh, the church bound humanity together to fight against them. Um, yeah, they're okay. Um, and then we're finally to, these are the alien races that kind of basically fall under control by the humans. We're onto the Vorox, who are, uh, your, you, they're, yeah, they're your six-limbed werewolves. They, they're not werewolves, they turn into humans, but they basically are your Krinos form. Krinos, your your twelve foot tall, six legged Krinos form werewolf. If you really want it, once again, I would argue, I would argue, you know, let a player play one at your peril. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> they will just the stats on them are quite crazy. They will tear apart. They will they will go through anything like like a wood chipper. I think if you want, <laughs> you're going to play them again. I would try and play them to try and get that element of like the Klingons into the setting yeah. uh, because it's all this. They're violent, but they have honour, and that's, uh, I think, important. So, yeah, that's, that's, those are the smaller alien races. Obviously, there's other factions. Um, the other factions that we, other alien races we've not spoken about, and for some reason that's not on here. Um, yeah. If, if, talk, if we're talking player ah, races, okay. um, um, then of course we have, we have the very big one who are the Val. Yes. Um, who, how, they're possibly even more like Shogun at Japan. Absolutely, yeah. And they're interesting because they have ridiculous technology. They're they're yeah, basically the your they're your Eldar of <laughs> the Fading Suns because they have access to like plasma technology of 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 a ridiculous level and can do and they know they're also very much in tune with um with the ancient technology of the jump gates. Yeah. Um, so, so when when humanity first encountered the Vow, or at least an, an alien race that was subjugated by the Vow, uh, you know, they sort of showed up, said, "We'll take this planet." And the alien race that lived there said, um, "We kind of want you to leave, please." And they went, <laughs> "Silly aliens." Then next thing I know, a massive Vow warship showed up, destroyed their fleet in orbit, and, and butchered them all, and then told them, "This is Vow space. Never come back." Hmm. And that was pretty much what happened with the Vow. Everyone just kind of sat there and went. Maybe the vow, no one, then the vow were always quite mysterious. Uh, they were fleshed out a bit. There's a, which I'm not going to get into too much because it's a little bit of spoiler territory. There's a, there's a source book specifically for mm-hmm. the vow. Um, but there was always the question of why don't the vow, you know, well, the vow potentially have enough firepower and enough manpower to conquer humanity. They just, for whatever reason, don't. Yeah. Um, so there's the vow, and then I think really the other things to say about are the fact we have um, the final race, uh, which we should really uh, point out is known as the Symbia, and they have control. They basically have control of four worlds, uh, known as Chernobog, Absolution, Daishan, and Stigmata. Stigmata is a world which is uh, I can't remember who exactly has control over that one. It doesn't really matter. But the fact is, that war, that world is at constant warfare. So the, and it's kind of like the, the, the last world that symbiotes have, and it's their foothold into the known, uh, into the uh, known worlds. So the symbiotes are 
parasitic entities attempted to break through into human space and possess its inhabitants and turn them into a hive mind slaves. Um, the only way really to get rid of them is to use fire, you know, to get rid of the infestation or to use, you know, theurgy. Um, yeah, how would how would you describe them? I suppose it would almost be they're they're not quite sort of um, tyrannids. They're, they're more no. sort of, they're almost like sort of they're almost like sort of bio borg. If you if you, if you're going to borrow something from another, um, if you're going to borrow something from Star Trek. So so what sort of happened with them was I was so going to say had, you know, before you went on with that, I was going to say the, I'll tell you uh-huh. what they're closer to. You're right with the bio borg. You're right with like the tyrannids in that sense. But I would also say there's the element of body horror from the thing. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to go there. Yeah, because because a person could be infected and still be know who they are and eventually get consumed into the race. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, hmm. and they've got an interesting history of their origin. Uh, yeah, that was, that was, they had, there was, there, there was a native, there was a native, um, sort of symbiotic organism which humanity hadn't come across. I, th- I think they were in the sort of, you know, in the unexplored regions of the planet. And then they were what happened when, when this symbiotic race ran into a human psychic. And then, of course, shit got real. <laughs> yeah. And somehow mm. the, the vowel are able to keep it off out of their, uh, jump web. So, um, and the vowel have quite a lot of worlds. Um, it'd be an interesting thing, I'm just going to point out now, because we haven't actually mentioned this about the jump gates and the worlds. The proximity of one jump gate to another, so if, say, let's take for example on the jump web, uh, thing, Byzantium Secundus, which is the main, uh, homeworld of the empire, world, yeah. throne world, has a connection to the world of Aragon. It also has a connection to the world of Maddox. Now, just because each of those worlds are one jump away from Byzantium Secundus, it actually has no meaning to the real world proximity, the real space proximity between worlds. So the jump web has no relation at all to where stars actually hang in the sky. Uh, Yeah. Cool. Okay. That was just a a sidebar there. Um, Oh, and I think the, the next thing we can say, which kind of rounds up racism and factions, we've got the barbarians. So as we said, we've got the Kurgan Caliphate, who are at constant war with the Hazat, and are essentially your uh, Arabic kind of pre-Islam uh, Persians. Um, not much more to say about them. That's kind of how, mm-hmm. yeah, that that kind of how they fit. And you know, there's a whole they've got a bit of a few worlds that you can go adventuring in. And then there's the Voldra Star Nation, which, again, you have to kind of approach all this with uh, tongue-in-cheek and to use it in the right way. So they, they do raids on the Hawkwood, and they're basically your space Vikings. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's what I mean. Sometimes it's the same with any sci-fi setting. Why sci-fi is sometimes harder to... You want to portray in a way that, that gives the right sense of immersion and sometimes certain races and factions break the immersion because they are um a pastiche you know of something um yeah absolutely and, absolutely. and i mean particularly particularly when they've made this design choice in they've made this design choice in the game to say that you know technology's gone to a certain place and stopped and a lot of times you have writers go okay you know the, the way they design races and factions is okay is how has the technology affected the people? So you have a, you know, you have things like a society of, I mean, things like the Borg, you know, where, you know, 
where you have, you know, we've got a technological hive mind. So that, that defines, so then, so their technology defines them. But when you have, but when that's not a factor, like in this, yeah, they then have to come up with something else. And yeah, sometimes, sometimes it can be hit and miss. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, it's a little bit more of a miss. Um, okay. Um, what should we move on to next? Um, as we said, there's, shall we say about, um, the more, I guess, the more unique elements in the setting, or, or at least the other interesting elements that there are. So we've got, should we talk about, oh, I don't know where to start, should we talk about heresies and demons and the occult? Because that's something, obviously, which we've, we've talked about alien races, and we've talked about, you know, star travel and all that stuff, and that's all kind of, like, T- typical sci-fi bread and butter, no matter what you're playing, like whether it be Star Trek, Star Wars, or or um, Firefly, and all those things. But where I would say Fading Sun starts becoming the cousin to the World of Darkness is when you start getting into the the elements of the occult and the stuff to do with heresies within the setting. Yeah, okay, let's 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 talk a little bit about that. So the occult. So the occult has, um, as we've mentioned, the church has access to rituals of faith called theurgy. Yeah. And that's, I, 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 there's nothing really more to say about that. That's very simple. You know, they can, they can call down holy fire, they can do healing, they can do divination. That's pretty simple. You then have psychic powers and psionics, and that's kind of a, again, a, a typical thing of, of a sci-fi setting that you know, humans have advanced so far that they're they're beginning to evolve. Um, and of course, then other races have their own kind of, or groups have their own kind of flavour of theology or their own flavour of psychic powers. So the other things in the occult, we've got the Sarathism, which is this religious cult where people are addicted to going through the jump gates without the jump drives or the Saratha dam- yeah. uh, dampers. Um, so, Pete, what can you tell us about that, or what you think about this? Well, it's, we've, we've co- we covered it a little bit initially, I know we were a little bit hodgepodge when describing the background. Um, so, ooh, let me think, Sathra Cult, Sathra Cult. Sorry, Chris, not a hell of a lot, mate. Okay, it says here, I mean, the thing it says is that, obviously it's this addictive ecstatic sensation you gain from travelling through a jump gate. Yeah. So obviously there's this whole thing that... People do it and they breach uh, both holy law and technological law to do this. So, so these people are at the fringe. It's a, it's like a, a drug to them. The thing where this gets dangerous is the fact that apparently it, it can induce psychic powers in the users. Yeah. Um, and the other thing then is how those group of people then are. Uh, interact with the rest of society and how that interacts with you know what the gates are doing so because there's this whole thing of like the fading suns and why is that happening and how that relates to what humanity's doing and how humans are evolving and their interaction with the jump gates themselves and so whether and so there's the question of how sarathism is related to all of that so that's something that can be quite you know explored in in a game uh you know where you're you're maybe hunting down these cults of Sarathists. But they're the kind of like they're kind of like, you know, I guess you could say they're they're the they're not villains in the classic we're evil. They're just doing things because they want to do it. 
rather than yeah. because they're not doing it because they hate people. They're doing it because they want to just do something because they, they love doing it. Uh, and they're not out to hurt people. Whereas you have Antinomy, which is obviously covers the broad range of demons and, you know, necromancy, ancestor worship, and, of course, conversing with the creatures that lurk in the darkness between the stars. Because yeah. that's a very big thing in Fading the Sun. So, um, you know, so again, if there's theurgy, then there's also, there's also, you know, basically demon worship in the setting. And there are rules for demons and possession and the powers that cultists can get from that. And they they can basically be, you know, venerating these almost, I would guess you would say Lovecraftian entities. Um, so you can really inject some of that kind of Cthulhu uh, kind of scale mythos into it. And, you know, some of the races actually do touch on that with the, with the gods that they uh, venerate. Um, and related to that, then, is the fact that you have these, um, what do they call They call them space kraken, don't they? So, so. so you have to be careful when traveling in space because obviously there's these apparently giant, ooh, what are they? I guess you could say Cthulhu level entities, you know, kind of that kind of scale. And, uh, they can obviously destroy ships and consume them. And the way to, to, to ward them off is using um, artifacts created by the Anukai. So these, um, you could basically get the, you can basically take from a world, say, a, uh, a statue carved by the Anukai and attach it to your ship. And some church ships do this, or some noble ships have this, and it acts as a ward to these, you know, these uh, cosmic entities. Um, and Related then to that, there are numerous heresies. So there's the An- uh, there's the Anakai cults, there's incarnates who are waiting for the uh, rebirth of uh, of the of um, of Zebulon, or are looking for like the uh, the the actual pancreator to manifest in the re- in, in the world. Um, you know, there's people that are obsessed with technology, and so uh, undergoing like uh, full cyberization. Um, and then, of course, there's the one that relates to um, the emperor coming to power, which is the whole idea that uh, since uh, Emperor Alexis Hawkwood took power, for the first time, a, a new star has been seen uh, in the sky burning brightly. So apparently that's a, a portent of things to come. Um, wow. Is there anything more you want to say on occult or heresies or other creatures no. that you can inject um, into testing? I think there's you can put vampires, you can put zombies and ghosts into it, obviously with I their think, own kind of... I think um, a lot of those things exist in some form or another. They're in, they're in a few of the different books. I think mm-hmm. you pretty much covered it quite well there, mate. Um, all right, so what else can we talk about? Did, shall we... Let's take a little bit of a breath. Shall we talk about... Uh, now, so that's... We've that's given you a pretty, yeah. yeah, that's, that's the setting in, in a, in a, well, what is now almost a two hour nutshell. Um, should we talk a little bit about the, um, a little bit about the system that they developed, they developed for the game? Yeah, the system is, uh, I guess at the time was quite different maybe to a few. Um, where to begin with this? Um, so it's a, <laughs> Uh, do you want to go start with this? And then, um, if you've got, because oh. I haven't actually got one of the rule books open in front of me, um, 
Oh, nice so, one. Um, so, so we'll talk a little bit about it. It's, it was called the victory point system, mm-hmm. and so the deal with the deal with the victory point system is you is initially you um you're rolling a d20, and I believe it's it's you take attribute plus skill, and you're looking to roll as close to that number without going over. Mm-hmm. There's and um, depending on how well you roll, there's a there's um, you pick up a number of successes. Of course, the more successes, the better. Um, and I, am, I, am I wrong? And I say, was it rolling a now? Now, which way is 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 rolling the critical? Is, is it rolling the one or is it rolling the twenty? Uh, a critical success is rolling a, directly on the target number. Yeah, that that, that so, doubles your successes, I believe. Yeah, and that doubles your that doubles your um, yeah that doubles your success. Um, and then, uh, so obviously the number of victory points you could get was determined by, yeah, is, and then of, of course, you know, you can, um, you can do a critical fail. And a critical fail is where you roll. It's a, 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 a one, a, I believe. A critical fail is a straight 20. Because remember, you oh. want to roll, you, your, your target is, obviously if you've got a high attribute and a high skill, then you've got a high target number. So you want to roll, you either want to roll equal to or under the target number That's right, and yeah. to succeed. But you would have a critical fail if you roll a 20 and you have a critical, you would have an automatic success if you rolled a one. Now let me just open up my fading suns. Because, yeah, we were, because, because we were discussing this ourselves a little, a little bit while ago. Now, the system is very good, but I think um, you, ha- you had the, the, the criticism that the, that the critical, the 20, shows up far too often. That's a common, it's a common issue, and there's a few yeah. fixes you can do for it. So mm. you, could, um, you could go to a 2D10 system, which obviously gives you a nice bell curve. A yeah. bell curve's great. Or you could do something that's a bit more, say, equivalent to uh, almost kind of like the version of doing um, a chance die. So if you roll a 20, you you have the chance of a critical fail. And then you need to roll again. And if you fail on that, then it's a critical fail. So it means that if you're, if you're high in skill, your chance of a critical fail will diminish Um so it's a, it's it's basically rolling twice type thing, um, and as you said, so the victory point system means that you will get a depending upon how well you succeed, you get a, a number of successes. Um, so if we look at the victory chart, um, <laughs> where is it? I can't find the dice rolling system in the book. So have you got the book? Have you got the book there? Like, um, I'm trying to trying to explain like the um, the how you determine your victory points based upon what your target number is. I believe it's on the character sheet, isn't it? Yeah, it's on the character sheet. It is. Okay. What, what were you after, mate? Oh, don't. It's on the character sheet at the back. The victory chart, yeah, there. Yeah. I know, I've got a different character sheet, that's why on the, in this book <laughs> doesn't help. So, okay, so, so say you've got like a, say my skill that I'm trying to beat, uh, trying to, trying to, my target number that I'm, I'm rolling is, uh, a 12, okay? So how many victory points would I get if I rolled an 11? You would get three. And then how many would I get if I rolled a six? You would get two. 
too. So it, it means that if you, it's, it's base, it's, it's, it's got different scales, doesn't it? So, um. Yeah. So if you beat it by, um, if you beat it by one or two points, you just get one victory point and no bonus dice. If you beat it by three to five, you get one victory point, you get a bonus dice. If you beat the, if you beat the difficulty by six to eight, you get two victory points and plus two dice to whatever your next thing is, be it combat or the next skill. Yeah. And that's it's it's that simple actually, and that works really well because um, the thing to note here is that that basic skills are rolled as it says with a d20 or the modified version that you use, and damage though in combat is done using d6s, so it's a straight kind of you know uh, it's straight like four uh, five six is a, is a is a damage, so you basically work out that based upon how many victory points you get and thus how many victory dice you get. And the strength of the weapon and the strength of your character, that gives you X number of D6s to roll as damage against your opponent. Um, you could also do some further things to dice rolls, which is where you can, uh, you can do accents. Now, accents, uh, uses a weird point. You can basically imagine that you spend a weird point, it's like spending a willpower point, okay? And this basically means you can, you can boost up or down the difficulty of the target number. And the amount you can do that by is, uh, let me see, is based upon, I believe, your skill itself, uh, when you do an accent. Yeah. You can, you can boost the target number by an amount equal to equal to your character skill. So say you've got a target number of 12 and your skill rating is 6. You can actually make the target number then 18 or you can make the target number 6. So you can make it easier or harder. And you would think, why would I want to make it harder? Or why would I make it easier? Well, if it's what you definitely need to succeed on, you make it easier because then you're more likely of passing. Right? But it means that you will get back less victory points and less victory dice for your success. So it's that whole thing like you've made it easier, but you, you're just not getting back the most for it. Um, and then if you get a, if you make it harder, you obviously are getting back more victory. You, you're going to get more victory points for, uh, for your, uh, for your dice roll. Um, so it's a, it's a slightly, it's a, it's an interesting system in that sense. Uh, what do you think of, what do you, have you, what do you think of the system then, Pete, with how that generally works? Um, I'll be honest with you, um, I've, I've always been a huge fan of the game. I never really got a chance to, um, um, to really stretch the system's legs. I was always, I was, I was, I was quite happy with the victory point system back in the day. Only I never, I never really quite road tested. I don't know. You've, I think you've. Did you, did you when you've played Fading Suns, were you a player or, or did you end up? Oh no, I, I ran it. I ran it. Yeah. I well, ran how it. did um, how do you ha, um, how do you think it went? Do you think um, um was combat okay? It didn't bog down. Um no, I mean it's it's fairly the skills okay like so skill systems fine. Uh, character creation is a wonderful thing for the system because uh, character creation uses uh, uh, what they call it call it a, a, life, a life path or something a life it, um, path I, yeah I think uh, yeah um, um, I, didn't, I didn't end up play, um, when I played it we were using first edition so it didn't have the life path system okay. 
the life path system is excellent because it's essentially kind of adding lots and lots of careers onto your character until you end up with a character that's fully fleshed out. And I think it gives a really nice um, idea of who your character is. Um, Skills, as I said, skills are are simple enough, and that was never a problem. As for combat, I don't remember it ever really being getting too bogged down. I mean, as I say, it was very simple to, to, to hit... To, to roll that. So if I just skip through to find the combat system, just to refresh my memory on a few little pointers on this. So obviously there's a whole thing that you could have multiple actions, and if you had multiple actions, it meant that your your modifier to hitting got harder. So that's fairly simple. Um, you had an initiative system, which you know, I think it basically says you would roll each turn, and I didn't bother because it kind of got annoying in that sense. Um, you have multiple different types of attacks you can do, so you can do kicks and so forth, and then dodging was essentially meant you had contested rolls. So the whole point is then, um, if you have a contested roll, depending upon how well you both succeed, then you compare victory points, and then that gives you a judgment of how well the one person has beaten the other, and then if it's a tie, you then look at the person's skill rating. And then if that's tied, you then look at their attribute rating. So, you know, you, you, yeah. you've got quite a few things to kind of break ties, which is, which is good because tie break is always crap. Um, and, you know, you can choose to accent attacks. So you could always, you could always play risky. You could, you could make your, your, your role to hit harder. So you'd actually get more victory points. So that was if you wanted to deliver the killing blow, you had the option of how to do that. Um, and so that was all fairly simple. So you, know, you have the contested roll, you then work out the victory points, you then take from the victory points how many dice you get to, as your damage modifier. And if you get critical success, you get more, you know, you get more dice. Um, and you roll those d6 in as damage dice, so you know, a weapon, say, does three damage dice, you succeeded and you've got like an extra two, so you roll those, and a one, two, three, four, it causes a point of damage, on a five, six, it doesn't, and then, of course, once you've worked out how many damage points you've done, you roll a number of d6 for armor, and on a one, two, three, four, the armor, you know, removes a point of damage. So, the, the way the damage, the combat system, that already sounds very simple. Um, the things where it gets complicated, maybe, is martial arts and, you know, combat stuff. And that's complicated always in any game system, is where you add in extra forms of how you can do attacks. Um, but really, it wasn't too bad. It got interesting because obviously there's, 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 uh, lots of actions for, for fencing, because fencing is a, important element of the setting because it's the whole slow blade penetrates the shield so to explain yeah. that in, in June you have the whole thing they have these shields and slow attacks would penetrate the shields like gunfire because would be bounced off because it's based upon the kinetic energy of an attack so nobles could would generally the types to carry around small kind of they would look like amulets or bracelets or pendants and they would activate them and they would have a shield you know, protecting them. Yeah. And that's meant in game you could have one player, a noble, quite happily run down a corridor at someone who has like a, a, a submachine gun, 
doing full auto and all the bullets just bouncing off them because he's got this, you know, this armor that's really good at that. But when it comes to, to fighting, to fencing, like hand-to-hand combat or, or in duels between nobles, they would, fencing was important because the aim was actually to deal lots of hits that did little damage because you wanted to, it, you wanted to be able to penetrate the shield. So you have that element uh, to the game. So it meant that if your attack did, say, like less than three dice of damage or something like that, you can um, it wouldn't get stopped by the shield. So as I said, you you would have drawn out fencing, and so there's a whole thing with like fencing actions, like thrust, parry, slash, and all these things. They would have um, uh, they would have bonuses and so you could actually do some nice drawn out fencing combat between characters so you could do you could do it as kind of like uh, mind games between the combatants um, so and of course there's lots of guns and guns range from simple bolt action rifles all the way up to you know machine guns to laser weaponry to plasma weaponry to insane you know <laughs> neuro disruptors <laughs> Insane Second Republic legacy weapons, which are just godly. And again, there's a whole load of firearm actions and skills. And again, some of these, some of these actions are only accessible if you have uh, the, the right level of the skill to do it. So you can gain... So it just means it gives you a few more options, like you're quicker at reloading and so forth. Um, and damage was fairly simple, you know, with with uh in a kind of a typical kind of white wolf health levels kind of sense um the other only other stats really to talk about is that in second edition and that's maybe been fixed in the i think the one thing they fixed in the the recent kind of revised version are they are they actually calling it a third edition or is it a revised revised edition it's it's, it's a revised i'm i wouldn't call it a third edition because it doesn't really change the rules um it's you you had you used to have um a balance between um uh these attributes like faith and ego and stuff like that so these are like attributes which are a balance between two concepts um and that's the and those are related to psychic powers but yeah i would say combat isn't actually that difficult i mean if you have a fixed initiative if you do you roll initiative at the start of combat then different attacks mean you could get act- are able to act faster or slower. So the way I would run it is that you would roll initiative and then I would go for a classic World of Darkness kind of sense where the person with the lowest initiative declares that action first. So they could choose an action that meant that they could technically go in a go go for, go before someone else because they've they actually have they're acting faster because they've chosen a faster attack. But then that that, that means other characters who've got the higher initiative could choose actions that respond to that so they could go well I'll let them go before me but I'll do a more powerful attack that means I go slower so there's mm. that kind of balance which I think is the, the fairest way to run it so there's a few yeah. there's a few house rules I did that made it a bit more playable in places um, but otherwise you know there's a, there's, a, there's a ton of different weapons you can get and as I say it ranges from like from basic crossbows and, and bows to slug guns to energy weapons to heavy weapons with missile launchers to various types of wonderful types of armor uh energy shields and um and obviously there's you get into the the 
The only thing which I would say that's missing in the game, and again, there's some good house rules you can find out there, is space combat. And the one thing that makes that space combat's missing is rules for like maneuvers and mm. sensors and where where the enemy is. So I think you can take some inspiration maybe from some other sci-fi games out there that have a good kind of spaceship focus and introduce some alternative rules for for adding in more detailed spaceship maneuvers. Because one of the things that one maneuver say that I that I use that's in a house uh, in a set of house rules was that you could do um, a, that you could make the uh, your your spaceship do a roll because obviously the spaceships are defended by sh- by shields by yeah. energy shields and so if you do a roll it kind of like you know spreads the damage you're taking from a laser blast and yeah. it means then the shields regenerate faster rather than one shield just being fully overloaded so you know there's just little bits like that that I think I I was hoping for and why I was hoping for an official third edition that they would overhaul space combat and actually make it more detailed because I was going to say that's where troop play comes in um, do you know if it linked in at all with Noble Armada could you could you fire up the Noble Armada rules and and use and use that for spaceship combat there's no reason why you can't yeah and I think there's I think there is some overlap that you can do that Um, I've just never had the option of doing that with the miniatures available to me Um, yeah fair enough so yeah, I would say I would say the rules are actually fairly simple. I guess that where it gets maybe a little bit more involved is when you're into the realms of of uh, magic and and uh, and rituals. So the occult obviously covers um, psionics, and you know your character can go slowly insane as he's using it, or you know you've got churchly rituals and there's a definite difference in flavor between things so psionics seem a bit more immediate whereas say churchly rituals theurgy feels a little slower but it can be a lot more useful in the long term and then there's the dark side of theurgy so you can get hubris which are like you know the dark twin of it so these are like the really evil uh, spells um so and then that really Looking through the book, there's there's actually a really good in in the second edition book. There's a really good example of play, uh, which I think if you re- if someone reads through, really gives a good idea of how the game should feel. Um, obviously, there's a load of technology, um, and technology can range from being as like you know backpacks, which are like so you can scan things. Like your tricorder could be like a huge actual backpack rather than a whole than a handheld thing. Um, yeah, and Obviously, there's vehicles, and really the game's the, the core book game is just missing more detail on, say, vehicles and stuff. And uh, mm. but you can it can play really well, and you, know, you can get the idea of like pirates, you know, attacking your little ship as it's flitting about. Um, the storyteller section I think is quite good. I mean, um, in second edition, so it talks about dra- it, it talks about dramas and the fact that you should be that you should be collaboratively trying to tell an epic tale. Like, your characters are notable characters who um, will be spoken of down the ages. And so it kind of gives you that idea that you're actually all collaboratively, uh, you know, talking, you know, going through the tomes and talking about the story of these characters that have been written somewhere by some, you know, historian. Um which kind of fed into um, the way I did my write-ups for my chronicle for it. So um, one of the characters, um, he had a, a valet 
and he, I always wrote it in, from the perspective of the valet. So he'd always be like, oh, my master has got me into, got us all into trouble once again, or that damned <laughs> insect. Um, so it was always from his journal, and it, it added to, um, the actual play obviously added to how everyone was playing, because they all engaged in that collaborative vision of the game. Um, and, you know, the whole question then is about, like, it, the, the game's mastering section talks about how to get the scale right and what type of stories to tell and to introduce horror or romance or, um, or, you know, conspiracies and scandals and Byzantine, you know, Byzantine politics. Um, and the difference between a, a small chronicle and an epic and, and memorable characters. So they're really trying to, like, lay on thick how you should be telling this epic space opera. Um, yeah. And there's a good amount of um, NPCs, like some good starting NPCs in the uh, in the core book, um, and some weird creatures and demons and uh, and so forth. And that feeds in well with like um, so the core book, the second edition core book has a short introductory story you can run, uh, which I can't remember what it's called. Uh, oh, the uh, the Electo's journals. Uh, no, uh, it's the uh, set on Pandem- uh, diplomatic community, which is set on. Well, that's Adamania. the one. I'm sorry, yeah. I, I've run it twice, and it's it's perfectly good. And you know, I use it just to kind of paint rather large pictures of like how nobles would have estates and and how they would travel around them, be it on horse or on like. I think one person, uh, the pilot in the in one group, had a grav bike. So I've run it as a one shot, and I've also run it as part of a chronicle. Uh, as the yeah. start of a chronicle that led into one of the books which is called Complete Pandemonium that had like three stories which I also ran um, and then also the thing with the storytelling section that they get into is um, something known as the passion play which is an interesting concept so what this is and I'm going to read it directly from the book because it's an interesting concept which I think can be applied to different roleplay games so it's a futuristic passion play, for it's a story about the sufferings and triumphs of mankind over in a medieval space setting a millennia from now. So in addition to using the term as a description of the setting, Fading Sense allows you an optional mode of play called the passion play roleplay. Not all games need to use this element, but it can be useful. So it's meant to focus, it's meant to like get into the, how over the top and epic the game is. So the idea is that you play through the game and one key important of the passion play is is the theme of the epic or the drama and that the game master isn't just using it. It's kind of like a, a, a bit of metagaming. So it doesn't tie up... So let me get this right. So at the end of a session, a game, game session, the games master and players review recent events and weave a morality play from them, deciding the meaning of what they have just may have just been random, spontaneous choices. So essentially, it's, it's telling you to like imagine, imagine like the gameplay of the of the players is um, is uh, is imagine the gameplay of the players is, is being re- reviewed by some historians or being told by a noble to his children, and that then you are those people in that time period are later after all these events occurred and you're reading into all these events to find some deeper meaning 
So it's kind of novel, and it means then that you can actually have players feel compelled to play towards the theme of the Chronicle and gain bonuses to their dice pools when doing that. So it's this idea that they're actually playing to some sort of predestined, you know, goal. Um, so yeah, you can look for like some grand themes and how you slowly reveal these themes and you dish them out and yeah, it's, it's, it just adds something different to it. And I think it, it adds a way of like post game, you can be sat around and everyone could just be chilling out and you know, you're talking about the game, but in character as, as these characters like hundred years later. Like, not, not your actual player characters, there's other characters a hundred years later talking about the grand exploit, uh, of, of the, this party of questing knights. Yeah. Um, was it, one of the things which I, which, which, which I also kind of want to lay down is, um, each, each book begins with, you know, um, the quite typical chapter of like, the, there's like an opening story. Um, now what actually I think is very, very good about these is as to the best of my knowledge, they're all written by Bill Bridges, who's actually mm. pretty good, who's actually a pretty good novel writer himself. He's written some, I think he was behind, um, some of the really good ones for, uh, well, there's some of the good short stories, and I think he's now penning a um, a new novel for Werewolf the Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and there's there's like an ongoing story between each of them following uh, this character Electo. Um, I, I get the impression also that I think it's from the examples as well that this is Bill Bridges kind of you know um, in a similar way that you were is this is Bill Bridges writing up their ongoing Fading Suns Chronicle. Mm. So um, it's 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 Electo sort of telling the story of him and um, a noble's entourage as they sort of travel from planet to planet, and you know, each 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 one will kind of you know introduce whatever faction that the book's about. So um, so the um, the opening fiction for the book specifically about uh, the Merchant League, Merchants of the Jump Web. That one has them traveling to Leagueheim, and um, and they meet a few different League characters. It's 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 all really fun. It all kind of becomes sort of one overall big story. It's probably my favorite example of um, in-game fiction. I know a lot of the times when I open up a new a new role-playing game book and it's and here's the obligatory chapter of fiction, and sometimes it's 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 not all that great. <laughs> so sometimes I'm just going just kind of skip past this. But no, in, in, in each time in, in Fading Suns, it's almost a case of, oh, great, a new Fading Suns book was out. I'll get to read another chapter mm. of fiction. It was, it was a really good way to do it. No, it, it's... Um, so I've read some of that, and I've read the um, the collection of um, short stories, the... What's it, uh, stories? The, um, the Sinful Stars, yes. yeah. Yeah, 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 it's good. Um, I've got that floating around somewhere. I, I, I moved house... Uh, at the beginning of the year, and it's disappeared. I was really annoyed. I was going to I, because I, I hadn't read it on about sort of ten, twelve years. I was looking forward to sitting out and reading through it again. It's decent because I think it helps flesh out a lot of the the worlds and and things which obviously Bill Bridges had in mind. Um, so it really helps. Just kind of you you know, you get a feel for the setting a lot better. Yeah. And I think I think that's that's where this game in-game uh, text really does help. Because, um, to be honest, sometimes I don't really... I think sometimes I don't really read... I don't really read a lot sometimes on some game text because... It, yeah. I, uh, I think this is why I prefer maybe what you get with the God Machine Chronicle, for example. The God Machine Chronicle anthology is interesting because they're kind of like the bit that happens at the start of an episode of the X-Files, or Fringe, so something yeah, weird happens, yeah, 
The cold open, the teaser, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously, but it's not the story the players get involved in because they're getting involved, they're dealing with the aftermath of, of the, yeah. and that I like, so those are useful. I think it's when you get kind of like the more involved kind of with particular named characters, especially in like, say, Vampire and Werewolf and stuff, especially in like old school, like Vampire the Masquerade and Werewolf the Apocalypse and, and Mage, because often it's like, that's not quite how I would run things. And so it's a bit too, it can sometimes be a bit too bombastic um, and a bit too involved in its own plot uh, to be really of any useful uh, uh, help to like a GM. Um, yeah, but yeah, the, the, the Electos journals are really, um, are really cool. I think that pretty much gets us to the end. Um, yeah, I think we've, we've, we've spent a good two hours discussing it. Um, we can talk a little bit about what's, of, um, about what's out there and, and, and what books people can grab. Um, so as I said before, this is a, this is a really well fleshed out game world. I mean, there was a, when it was, when it was at its height, it was a, it was a pretty popular game. And as I said, there's something of like sort of 25, maybe even 30 books if you, if you don't count. Um, the compilation books that are out there. Mm. Um, so, what, what, what do we recommend people picking up? Um, I think if, if you're looking just to get the core book, there is a second, um, the second edition core book's pretty much the best one that you can get. Yeah, I um, would, this is what I'm gonna go, I'm gonna be a critic, I would say, don't you, even bother you, with. You can be critical, my I can be a critic. I wouldn't even bother with the revised version that's turned up. I think you can easily house rule and fix some of the things, which are the fixes that are in the revised one. The reason I say that is, if you're going to get Fading Sun 2nd Edition and you want to do print-on-demand, get that one. Because the print-on-demand, or if you buy the other one, the revised one, by uh, it was Red Brick and it's now the new version of FASA. Um, Which kind of rubs me a, the wrong way yeah. a little bit because it's a bunch of people trading under a name which, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. oh, guys, um, FASA was FASA and you guys are now... I don't know. For me, that's it's a little bit disingenuous. Yeah. If, if people are going to say, "Oh wow, faster are putting books out again," it's like, well, not quite actually. Exactly. And yeah. so I don't like the. Obviously, I, I've seen. I had a review copy uh, sent by Drive Through RPG of the um, of that book, and I don't like the layout. And it's it's so much as just a, it's a complete reprinting. Nothing's really added other than one or two minor fixes to rules. And it's I would say it's. Uh, is is a disservice because I know there was a lot of I'm gonna I'm gonna be open about it. There was a lot of hoo ha about Definitely. the proposed third edition that was being planned and how that got axed and a writer had a lot of his work just just never saw the light of day and yeah. proposed changes he was doing to the system and and how to push on the setting to be significant changes to make it more interesting again and living. Didn't come to pass. Instead, we get this halfway. It's not even a halfway house. It's just a. It's just a. The book with a new print job, and it's the layout is for a more kind of reader's digest size. So it's kind of like A5, and I'm just like, fuck no. Oh really? It's okay. lame. I don't like it. So anyway, other books. Um, so Fading Sun Second Edition. Get that one. Uh, um, I would also say that um, what the, uh, they also published a couple of compilation books. So, um, of course, you know, there's a book for the nobles, there's a book for the church, but, um, yes. but, uh, they published a compilation of both books. So, um, I'd suggest picking that one up. I can't remember what's it called. I think it's Lords of the, the Lords of the Realm. It's over on my shelf. Yeah. I may have to get up and go have a look at it. I've got a, I've got some double ups here. there. Um, they did a bunch of little books, which were sort of, um, which were, uh, planet guides. 
um, and they combined them in so so you could pick up the Decados Fife, which talks you through all the various different Decados books. You know, you can pick up the Hawkwood Fifes. There's a it's there's a quite funny little gag where there's a there's a um, among the Hawkwood worlds there's a planet called Gwyneth. Which has a uh, continent called Paltrow, so hmm. ha ha ha. Um, but you can pick up one called uh, called uh, Worlds of the Realm, which is yeah. uh, all those compilation books, you know, just stuck into a nice big fat big fat package. Um, in this instance, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I know I think the entire back catalogue is available as PDFs from Drive Through RPG. I don't quite yeah. think. I don't think you can get them all as print on demand. I know there's some of them scattered around. Like um, there was the one book which I there's a couple of books which I don't have, which were some of the newer releases from Red Brick, which I think they're available on Hulu. I think I think they did a Church Fife's book, which yeah. I was which I was looking at a while back. I, and I, I think you can get that as a, as a print on demand through uh, not Hulu, sorry Lulu, whatever it was mm. called, um, which I think you can pick up through that one. Um, in this instance, I'd say yeah, eBay is your friend. You can can find a lot of stuff out there cheaply. Different stuff, different stuff shows up at different times. For some reason, uh, Merchants of the Jump Web, which is the the Merchant League book, I could not find it for love or money. Uh, mm. And then, and then next thing I knew, there was five copies just you know, all on eBay at the same time. So. Uh, you know, see how you go. Um, a few of them are rarer than others. Uh, I've, I'd only ever seen one. Uh, there's Legions of the Empire, mm. which is a book, which is a book uh, um, regarding uh, the specific Imperial military. I only ever saw one copy of that in the wild back in 1996, and I never even saw it on eBay until I was I was quite lucky. I found it um, being sold by a second-hand seller at a recent convention here in Melbourne, and you know, practically fell out of my skin and just yeah, snapped that one up. Yeah, I would say the I would say the the main ones to try and get hold of I would go with these. So okay, so the second edition, which is holistic design, second edition yeah. revised, which is basically second edition reprinted with a few cha- with minor changes, which was done by Red Brick slash Fasser. Then there's yeah. revised edition, which is the Fading Suns Player Guide. Don't get that one. Um, Lords and priests get that. Get the yeah. um, get the merchants uh, the merchants book. Um, again, you have to be sometimes a bit careful with some books because they use the first. Edi- it refers to first edition rules rather than the second edition rules. Yeah. But don't worry about that. I mean, it's just um, setting material, and it's easy enough to yeah. fix. We should, we should probably talk a little bit about, and look, it's it's a little bit debatable because the people involved, so Andrew Greenberg and Bill Bridges, who are still around and they're still active in the community, uh, they've actually come out and kind of what, said what happened. There's there's an article over on RPGNet sort of discussing um, what happened to holistic design. Um, once again, I'm not quite sure how to trust it because you know I don't think I don't think the man who wrote it you know was taking it from a lot of primary sources, uh, but it, it just kind of says that I think I think holistic design kind of went down you know after the D20 uh, yeah. boom and bust you know in the early 2000s. Um, so there's a, there's there's a few Fading Suns books floating around because because the, the argument can be made that the background of Fading Suns you can you know it it, it potentially lends itself to the Dungeons & Dragons D, um, D20 setting. Um, look, I'd, I'd never liked... I was never a Dungeons & Dragons fan to begin with, so, of course, I'd say, yeah, no. Um, there's there's a bunch of different D20 um, Fading Suns books floating around. Uh, if that's your bag, go for it. Mm. Um, I, I, I was kind of never quite too... I was never all that 
as much as, you know, go and, go and dig them up. They're on my list of books to pick up eventually, should I see them on eBay for a dollar or something. I would also say you could easily, for people that feel creative out, out there, if they wanted to use a different system from Victory Point, uh, you could easily take, if you've got enough World of Darkness books, uh, especially New World of Darkness, I would say. Yeah, which, you which could I easily, do. you I, could easily with, port with it up. Um, you second can, you sight can would it. make it easy. <laughs> so, yeah, second sight makes it easy. Um, the bleed, uh, what is it? The the add-on packs to um, to World of Darkness mirrors. Yes. So the um, um the science fiction and the cyberpunk and on um, PDF add-ons that they you know you could you could you could hash something out very very simply if you if you know N word backwards like I do hmm. that was the, that because Fading Suns I'll, I'll come out and say it, it's my absolute favourite science fiction role playing game and it's one of the ones that I've just I've never been able to have the chance I never had the chance to run it. I've always had a pack of players and I went let's do Fading Suns and they went what's well, Fading Suns yeah I got <laughs> into the reason I grabbed it was because I when I got into role playing I started off with D and D and quickly D and D basic box set which was like 18th edition wow. I think uh, so that was like back in 1995 mm. so mm. I then got from that into Star Wars 2nd edition revised when West End Games were doing it and of course that's 1996 before any of the pre-trilogy stuff so to run that game for me I just bought some Star Wars books and you know you had the expanded universe and you basically had a, a big unwritten portions of the setting to run and it was great fun at the time I learned a lot from the second edition revised book. Like that has a brilliant GM section ever. If anyone wants to read something, how to get into role running games, that was brilliant. Um, thank you, Arcane Magazine, for telling me which game to buy. Um, then from that, I went into Vampire Masquerade because the point was I, I basically got, and obviously I've played ridiculous amounts of games, workshop games, all the way from like you know Titan Legions upwards and you know Space Marine and every game yeah, workshop game ever. So because, I've, oh, because for you it wasn't an adventure, it was a job, right? Yeah, it became a job and, as well, because I worked for Games Workshop and so I became yeah. really, you know, a sci-fi, that was to me my sci-fi setting, but there wasn't really, Star Wars basically burnt me eventually on wanting to run sci-fi settings, because even if you've got that, or, for everyone, yeah. or I just didn't feel like something that I could grab, and then I found Fading Sun, so I was like, that's the one. And mm. it was basically kind of like 40k, but less intimidating to kind of like run. So, yeah. And the other thing that is also on Drive Through RPG, if you're into LARP, there is a PDF for passion play, for live action roleplay. And the thing is, I, I can't bring myself to do vampire LARP, alright? Because I, I just, it's that suspension of disbelief, and I have a, I think I, I just have an issue with that, and there's a, an element of control, but I think passion play could work really well. Yeah, I, once again, I mean, I mean, I would, I would love to try Passion Play. I've, uh, I'm not so sure about me and LARPing because I don't know if I'm just, because I was, I was into Vampire LARP back in the day. I, I don't know if I can sort of, you know, I, was, I don't know if I can be self-conscious. <laughs> I don't know if, yeah. I, if I can, I don't know if I can lose the self-conscious factor enough to laugh again, so it's it's it, it's entirely my problem, not the games. But we'll see how we go. I I could well be be enticed out with passion play. Yeah, I think I've seen some good videos online of passion play in action, where people are playing at a convention center, and of course they're in a room and there's no windows. But the fact was that their 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 uh, their idea was that their characters were all at a casino on board a starship, 
So they didn't need windows because you wouldn't want windows because they'll shatter and everything and you'd be exposed to the elements. And yeah, that yeah, seemed a... to work. And also, compared to, say, I think as a Fading Suns, there's a lot more variety of how you can dress up. And so you can kind of, you can, you can dress, you can basically draw all the best parts of like, you know, classic D and, you know, fantasy LARP costumes. Yeah. And then you've got the best parts of like, you know, more futuristic outfits. So if you're kind of into, say, some of the clothing brands that I know of that like do kind of like, kind of fusion cyberpunk kind of style clothing, you can grab those. And then anything in between or Victorian. And all of that is viable for a fake yeah, sun setting. And yeah. I think that'd be really cool. And I think it, I think the thing is then that you, I don't think there are any cliches for the Fading Sun setting. So not everyone's just turning up in their all vampires wearing frock coats and corsets <laughs> and and obviously looking like that because that again to me represents the difference between how I envision how I see Vampire the Requiem compared to Vampire the Masquerade. It's like in Vampire the Requiem, if if a player character goes, "Oh, I wear this," I was like, "You sure you're gonna die?" Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think passion play would be really fun to do, and I think it would be fun to play if you've got your group of players. You could do a section where you all sat, you you kind of dress as close as in characters you can, and or as new characters, and you're just sat in your your house. So you do it just a, as a, a as a live action segment of your normal game, mm. and you're just kind of doing that bit where you're you're in some cabin on whatever ship. And you just get some food for the night and you do it as a, as a kind of like you're talking about and discussing things. And you could almost then do it as a, uh, if you've got enough people that be interested in it, some other people that are into gaming but haven't been able to play in the main game because obviously, you know, you only, you don't want 20 people playing because that's ridiculous in your like, in your normal tabletop. But say you've got another five people, you could add them in and then you've kind of, you could have a kind of an element of a murder mystery or kind of that type of game with that. And that's how I see you could run run it as well and yeah. add characters that are so you've got other friends who are playing the NPCs and then you've got your normal gaming group who are playing either their normal PCs or they've decided to play an NPC because they they can't they don't feel they can portray their normal characters so they decided to roll to like a different character I think that's yeah. a that'd be a fun way to do it yeah that'd be that'd be spectacular that'd be awesome so uh, closing words I guess so obviously you know there's Striker RPG Latest edition, kind of meh, you know, again, drive to RPG and eBay. Um, that's my own yeah, opinion. Um, I have looked at the book backwards and forwards. Uh, we've had Andrew Greenberg comment on Google Plus for us. Uh, so he is currently working on a mobile game version of Noble Armada. So, um, that's cool. That's in the future somewhere down the line. So, um, looking, you should. Check looking, it out. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Chris, um, so, so besides them putting out, you know, sort of a, a very so-so edition, um, um, well, new edition of Fighting Suns, do you have any idea if there, if, if there was any plan for them to, to, I don't know, add anything else to the background? Because I know, because one oh. of my more recent, one of my more recent acquisitions was, uh, of course, you know, the meta plot is, is a big, big factor in this game. I mean, I mean, I mean, the very plot, the very title of the game, Fading Suns, is a meta plot, and, and I know talking to Bill Bridges and Andrew Greenberg, I've read some interviews with them where they say yes, there is definitely a reason why the stars are fading. Um, now there was there was a couple of um, setting books called War in the Heaven, 
and um, mm. originally originally it was it was planned to be three books. I haven't spoken about them too much here because you know, there's there's big big spoiler plot stuff in there. So the first spoiler book was War. In, the first setting book, I'm sorry, was War in the Heaven Life Web, which deals with the symbiotes, and the second one was War in the Heaven um, Hegemony, which deals with the Vow. Yeah. And the and the planned third one was going to be War in the Heaven. Uh, I think Anunnaki, and it was going to deal with the progenitor race. It was going to de- mm. deal with with the jump gate builders, and of course, it never happened. For whatever yeah. it never happened, I think I think holistic design had imploded by that point. So it, it'd be nice to see if they were if they were ever planning on on you know finishing the trilogy, putting out that book, you know, and and, exp- and you know filling in some of the blanks. But then again, of course, if, if if it's done by someone else, if it's kind of done by someone who wasn't Bill Bridges, then it might be a little bit, yeah. Cause well, what? they have That's Bill Bridges likely, and Andrew Greenberg have oversight and, you know, holistic design still exists as a company yeah. uh, in, in some form. So they still have oversight on these books. So, mm-hmm. you know, they get last say on it because it's their IP being developed by someone else. So it's much the same scenario between Onyx Path Publishing and CCP. That's good. Uh, so, you know, obviously CCP doesn't have the time to keep developing more of the setting, so they may as well just churn it out to Onyx Path Publishing to manage that, because obviously that's Richard Thomas and you know, yeah. the White Wolf writers. So it's just a way of managing it, and I think it's the same. It's basically the same scenario, but... Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm just gonna, uh, there's nothing more to say about revised edition. I just, yeah. Fair enough, mate. Fair I would, I, I'd, I'd buy something from Fast at the moment. It was a proper redo, a, a proper redo of the rules. And yeah, it's just like, cause the Level thing that I feel, the other thing that I feel annoyed with, with it is they've done this player's guide and they're doing a, a GM's guide, I guess, eventually. Mm-hmm. And that's, that seems to be, you know, delayed some more. I think it's meant for Gen Con or something. And, you know, the rules fixes that they, they've basically done in the revised edition, I don't think merits buying the whole book over again. It's one of those things. Mm. It's like, at least you can go out and go, oh, God Machine Chronicles rules changes. I really like them. Oh, look, I can get them for free. Yeah, that was spectacular. I, I don't want to, <laughs> once again, I, I don't want to spend the whole night singing their, singing um, Onyx Path praises, but yeah, that's, that's, Good one. Very good company. More companies should do that. Yeah, because yeah. you know when you've got a game that has as so many books out that Failing Suns does, and there's a lot of good content, and all that needs to be done is either a few rules fixes, then fine, give it out for free. If you're doing a full overhaul to make the game more balanced and easy to play, faster, maybe takes in some more of the ideas and changes that say more contemporary roleplay games are using, and push it away from classic roleplay games. Then a new edition, yeah, maybe, maybe it's an edition that has more content in it from like you know the known worlds and includes more options. But they didn't do that. They just basically did a did a oh here's revised edition. It's basically second edition with some cut and paste and and poor layout. Um, yeah, Shit, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they've also they've also got the IP to uh, Blue Planet, which is another sci-fi game that I really like. So I, I know they've put out a player's guide and a GM's guide for that one. So I'm yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit dubious now. I'm just I'm, I mean I'm looking at the Fading Suns player guide right now and the text formatting and everything and like you know all the nice like not scroll work but you know the edges on the second edition book with all the the cool Anakai technology. All yeah, I'm looking at that. 
It's just, <laughs> it's just, it's very, 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 very blah. Um, <laughs> which is my, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm honest. Um, yeah. So that kind of wraps it up. Uh, so thank you. Peter, for your time and for your no extensive knowledge, because obviously it's good to someone that loves the game as much as I do. I think there's really a need to. I would want to play some at some play it again and run it again at some point. I I think it's one of those. I think the benefit of the sci-fi setting is I think it's a sci-fi setting that you can get people that aren't necessarily into sci-fi. So um, because of the kind of how it's also ties into medieval type stuff and and politics in that sense. Um, I think it'd be cool to see at some point a hangout game run of this. That'd be kind of wicked to do. Uh, Absolutely. Easy to do. Um, so all that needs to be said is we will include links to appropriate drive RPG products on, in the here that you'll see then somewhere on the post. Uh, we will also, if you have any comments or questions about this, tell us if we're wrong. Tell us what we did right. Tell us if you want to learn more. Um, because I guess we could always do something more at some point, then we can always be contacted at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. We, of course, are on Facebook. We're on Google+, Plus, so there'll be some talk there, I'm sure. We also have a Twitter. You can get in contact with us there. And I, we might... What else? Did we did we have a was there a competition currently running or have we finished or was that finished? Well, up that, that's some, but we've got new competitions coming up, so keep an ah, eye excellent. on more free products coming. Um, and I will also find the link to the live journal thread, which has my actual play write up for my chronicle, so people can awesome. read it because that basically took players from Pandemonium to the planet of Ivor. Uh, yeah. basically it was the first third of my proposed entire chronicle um, if I had more time to run it but yeah uh, I think that's about it then that's about it excellent so ciao see you later